welcome and bienvenue podcast. Mm-hmm. Is that it, or do you want to do more? Etranger okay, podcast. Glückwunschschein. Je suis podcast. Happy to see you. Bleevy reste. Stay. Willkommen. <laughs> I'm losing it. I'm losing it. I'm lo- I lost it. I lost it. I lost it. I lost it. I'm the sorry. only reason I thought you might not do that is I don't. You're not that adept with other languages. No offense to you, of course. Uh, I can't believe you say that about someone who uh, took French one seven times. <laughs> he took French seven. <laughs> I, well, yeah, you you got to start with seven and go down. That's I know. Do <laughs> That's what you do. <laughs> you start out. French seven is just you're in a cafe smoking cigarettes and someone <laughs> just makes conversation with you and you have to you have to keep up. I'm great at uh, ordering. Mm, right. Well, you point. You no, write. no, I say it. <laughs> okay. Sorry. 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 For the record, uh, I say it. He says it. I said hamburger. It. Hamburger. I don't. I don't say hamburger. <laughs> Orangina? <laughs> I say Orangina, Steve Who Play. <laughs> I'm not I'm not fucking Steve Martin Spectre Clouseau though. I know I know what to call it. That's the opposite. Uh, That's him struggling to order in English. Right? Yeah, he's French. It's right, he's trying to say I would like a French. hamburger. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, our guests can speak at any time, by the way. At any please, time. Please, That's just, 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 just chime right in. Please no. save us. Save us. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, you're staying out of this. Uh, great job, Griffin. Uh, thank you. Uh, I don't know. I probably should have just beautiful. stuck with the one line, but I, 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 want, I want to risk it. Basically, you said, welcome, welcome, podcast. Stranger, stranger, podcast. Right? You kept, you kept throwing podcast in for different words, which was funny. Yeah, it was. Uh, well, thank you for saying it was funny. I think it was up for debate, but now it's finally been settled. Listen, uh-huh. this is a podcast called Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David. Uh, producer Ben with us as always. And uh, this is uh, a podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their careers and are given a series of blank checks, make whatever crazy passion products they want. And sometimes those checks clear. Sometimes they bounce. Baby. Hmm. Right into it. I was like, is there a way to put a German word in there? And I, I couldn't fucking pull one. Uh, this is a mini-series on the films of Bob Fosse. It is called Pod That Jazz Cast. Nice. Thank you. Now, I want to ask our guest. It's not up for relitigation. It has been settled. I just want to ask our guest. I won't say whose pitch was whose. The alternate pitch was Pod That Cast. Oh. C-A-Z-Z-T. <laughs> Sorry, was that not the reaction that I should have given? It was the correct reaction. It was the honest reaction. It was the honest reaction. It was the honest reaction. I appreciate your candor. Of course. Candor and ebb. My candor and ebb. You're getting flipped a comedy point early. Okay. David, what? I just want to let you know that I Googled what the German word for baby is, and it is baby. So you actually got it right. I got it fucking right on the first try. Yep. Uh, our our guest today on the show. Ooh. I th- I think I think already a young legend of musicals. <laughs> Hell yeah! Oh God! And and dare I say it? Because I hope you just now default to this being your primary credit. A literal Disney princess. 
It's true. The rumors are true. You should just say literal. <laughs> you should tell people, I'm a literal Disney princess. You cannot debate that. That will hold up in court. Yep. Rachel Zegler. Thank you. On the show. It's like that clip of Barbara Walter saying, you are Beyonce. <laughs> Beyonce says, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I am not finally, Beyonce. I am finally not someone Beyonce. says it. Yeah. Not Beyonce. Thank um, you is an incredible response. Rachel, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I, it's so it's so cool to be here. Uh, I should let you know that for the last couple of weeks, every time we've sort of talked about uh, trying to schedule with you because you're being very generous with your time in the middle of uh, busy filming in a foreign country and crazy schedule and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> every time we were sort of like uh, trying to hash things out, David would just go, why the fuck is she doing this show? <laughs> <laughs> because I love movies but above all i love musicals so much and when this you asked me said. to do this and to do this particular film which is a film that i'm passionate about not only because of the film but i love the stage show more okay. than anything mm -hmm. so i'm just really excited to just talk about it right off the bat can we can we talk a little about your history with cabaret cabaret ray <laughs> yes um I assume the you would have seen the the revival. You know, I've actually well, which ne revival? yeah, I I never saw it on Broadway. Um, oh wow, okay. Yeah, even though I grew up in like a close proximity to New York, yeah, that was never a show that I saw. I don't really know why, in the sense that I, I think the latest revival was probably like two thousand fourteen. Is Correct. that right? Right. Yeah. Right. That's that's the that's the Michelle Williams Alan Cumming. With Alan Cumming, back. right? And, right. and then right. Emma Stone was the the yes. second. Right. And I yeah. think I was, cons I think my parents might have thought I was too young at that point to see it. But at that sure. point, I had already seen the film uh -huh, uh, sure. because I frequented my family frequented Turner Classic Movies when I was growing up. So whatever was cool. on, we'd just watch. And yeah. so I, I had seen the film a couple of times. It wasn't until I think I was like 15 years old and my local theater did it in Clifton, New Jersey. And Ooh. my director who had directed me in Fiddler on the Roof and Thoroughly Modern Millie, mm -hmm. she had cast her son, Chris, and her daughter, Sarah, as MC and Sally Bowles. And she was huh. so worried that it was going to look so like nepotism baby-ish. Yeah. But they were perfect. And the show was so astoundingly beautiful. And the stage show gives such a new meaning to the music that if you are only familiar with the film, you would actually, it would just go right over your head. And the, the stage show really just hits that home. And so since then... I saw a couple of other local productions of it because mm -hmm. I was obsessed with it. And then when I moved to London, uh, my boyfriend came to visit me for Valentine's Day and I Humble did brag, everything in my yeah. power. Uh -huh. oh, please. Yeah. I did everything in my power to see Eddie Redmayne and Jesse right. Buckley in right, the I West forgot. End okay. revival. And it was fantastic. It yeah. was really, really wonderful. The direction is very interesting. It's very different from what I've seen in the past. Again, never seen a professional production of it live. And it was super interesting. And Eddie Redmayne was just shockingly like a nimble mover and an incredible dancer that added a new storytelling aspect that I had never seen before with the MC. And, and Jesse was so uh, beautiful. A lot of people were saying, um, people that I was working with on Snow White who had seen it as well were like, well, Eddie is act one and Jesse is act two. And that really, it was the best way to put it was like act one was all about MC and act two was really all about Sally. And it was fantastic. Um, and 
and that's you know and then i rewatched the film last night and so that's my my history with cabaret cabaret i want to yes. see this london production this i looks, know yeah Did i they love just jesse buckley leave they, they both they, just uh, left yeah all right fine i'm not March. going no, yes. no, no, no. It's right. it's still. I've, I have a, I have a couple friends saw it recently. It was it's, uh, Frothy and so a- someone Amy Lennox. Lennox? Amy, Amy Lennox. Lennox. I don't yes. know Amy Lennox. I'll and say. Amy I do Lennox's know yeah. performance on the Olivier Awards was fantastic, and so it kind of yeah. made me want to see it again. Um, super um, expensive. Super worth it though. I, I am sort of embarrassed that I never saw the show live, that I didn't go to the, the last revival, which I guess technically was a revival of the revival. I mean, the, well, the, this is the, funny the legacy thing, yeah. of the Mendes Marshall perform right. uh, production yes. has sort of just right. like, because even a lot of the international outposts of the show for the last 20 years were like transplanting their design choreography, right? Yes. yes. Uh, there and the whole, you know, concept of housing it in a club and you're right, sitting, you know, right. in a by a table and it's all, you know. Mm-hmm. I saw. I don't want to brag. And Rachel possibly wasn't alive when I did this, which is which is depressing, but also good and normal because I'm not old. I'm just mature. The uh, right. But age. I saw you are the right, the one correct age. I saw the 1998 production so i didn't wow. see it in london yeah. i was too young for that but i saw it with natasha well, of course Richardson. you didn't i'm sorry of course right. you didn't see it in london you, you grew up in natasha new york city richardson i am so jealous so you yes. saw natasha richardson alan alan coming and alan coming in Incredible. Uh, the in in new york uh yeah. and it did kind of blow my mind to the point that like i think briefly i would say that natasha richardson was my favorite actress when i was wow. like 12 years old because yeah, i she would been so good in that even though like i probably had not seen her well, I'd seen the Parent Trap. I was going to say you'd seen the Parent Trap. Obviously, so I had seen her in at least one movie, but I, you know, sure. I probably hadn't seen her in much else. Um, but she was so cool, and that was so incredible. And Alan Cumming was so you know different from the movie version, which I probably I don't know if I probably hadn't seen yet. I'm not sure. I don't know. I can't remember mm-hmm. the timeline of all that. But anyway, that was cool. But I yeah, I never saw the Michelle Williams, whatever revival of the revival. Mm-hmm. I never. I I, I you know people went after it at the time being like, well, she's not a strong enough singer. And like, and then there's the sort of the backlash of like, well, Sally Bowles isn't actually supposed to be that strong. Right. You know, there's this weird tension with cabaret where you can kind of play it amateurish in a way, I guess like that can be part of the drama of what you're doing. I fully subscribe to the character Sally Bowles not being, uberly talented because then right you know it it adds to the plot of why her career kind of isn't taking off the way why that she she's thinks stuck it should. here right yeah because yeah. yeah. then you know i think it's a there's that false uh that false sense of stardom that liza minnelli gives the role in the film where you're like why is liza minnelli <laughs> in this like sad club <laughs> when, she's, like, when she's like not, a smoking hot babe who's so a good smoking at this. hot babe who is the daughter of judy garland <laughs> like <laughs> and, and looks her career incredible can't take off right uh, oh my god yes and she's doing like the these these numbers that you're like wow this is incredible people would be like running from all over the city to see this shit but anyway we can get but into not to that. jump ahead there it, it's the thing it's the innate thing about uh liza that i think like fossey taps into really well here with there's just something a little too vulnerable about her mm. 
which on stage, I, I think, you know, if you're seeing her live, uh, it's, is all about the connection with the audience. And in a movie like this, the way he shoots her, even though she's fucking killing these numbers, you're like, yeah. there's something a little uncomfortable about it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a little too raw. It's a little too naked in, in how clearly she wants to be loved, which is like the Achilles heel of this character. Right. Uh, can yeah. I just no, I sp- speed run through? Because I've forgotten some of these. Because that production ran for so long, the the ninety eight, right? Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And they kept on star casting Sally Bowles. Uh, I mean the the two thousand fourteen was unique to have like two people that big play Sally and just be stars, like two gigantic right. movie stars who both had performances that people had strong takes on, and then the show closes, right? Well, um, Sienna Miller actually did it as well, and then and then it closed. Sienna Miller did it as well. She Jesus. was the last Sally Bowles. Yeah, yeah. This is interesting. This was the '98 yes. run, okay? Mm-hmm. Not in order. Jennifer Jason Lee, Susan right. Egan, Jolie Fisher, Gina Gershon, Debbie Gibson, Terry Hatcher. Always struggle with this name. Melina Canacaretis. Kenakaretis. Kenakaretis from CSI New York. Yes, Jane leaves Molly Ringwald, Brooke Shields, Leah Thompson. Ooh, Jane leaves. Leah Thompson. Weird list, right? Leah Thompson would be so good. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Right? But there's a real range of different types of performers. And and different levels of comfort with musical theater. And yeah. I remember Michael C. Hall being the MC. I remember the posters of him. Rolla Sparza, Neil Patrick Harris. Neil Patrick Harris. Yes. Sort of pre, you know. Adam Pascal. Right, Adam Pascal. Yeah. John Stamos, Norman Leo Butts. Exactly. Yeah. John Stamos. Who was he? Robert Leo Butts did it. Is that what you just said? Yeah, yep. that must have been pretty early for him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you gotta you gotta really throw yourself around. I mean, it's a demanding role. Like, I mean, that's like pre Wicked Norbert, post Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I think it might be pre Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, right? Pre Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Absolutely yep. has it's, to be. It, when right? was Dirty it, Rotten Scoundrels? Two thousand five. Yeah. So he does that right off of Wicked. Wow, this right is going to be Wicked. a musical nerdy episode, which I love. Uh, but what he had done, Rachel, was he had been in Rent for years. Right. That, he was he was part of like the replacement cast in Rent. Yeah. And I guess he jumps from that to this to the cabaret revival. And then he does like he did the last five years, right? Uh, well, yeah, that was his uh, off Broadway, right? Yeah, yeah. God, I'm sorry, I just didn't even realize that the Mendes production starts in '93. It doesn't come to Broadway until '98, mm-hmm. but that essentially '93 that... out here, right? It was out here. Yes, with yes. Adam Godley and right. yes, Rachel is broadcasting from London. Right, I don't know how. Yes, you know Ad- that. oh sorry, yeah, I didn't. Adam Godley <laughs> and, and and the great Jane Horrocks, yes. little voice herself was was Sally Bowles. Yeah. Love Jane Horrocks, she was so good in that too. Um, but it, it and, is funny. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like Fosse's uh, take on cabaret casts such a long shadow, and then like you know, uh, twenty years later, Mendes comes in, and then that becomes the definitive thing. Like everyone's riffing on for thirty years almost. Yeah, I mean, I, I it's funny. I feel like he's the one coming as the one who sort of I, not reinvents, but he 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 more hypersexualizes the MC, right? Versus the Joel Grey take. Well, I guess. the, the MC the Joel in the stage isn't. production is the is the ever the omnipresent spectator right. and the then yeah. the puppet master of the whole thing. Whereas you know Joel Grey didn't really get that opportunity because it was on the screen. Yeah, and because of the way he sort of Fosse makes the movie 
realistic or whatever. Like, right. you know, he makes the songs right. diegetic and all that. Right. Although I love that too. Because I do love that the MC in the movie is this utter mystery that you, yes. you know, that like you just, you just have no idea what his relationship, like who, like he almost seems like he only lives on the stage or we can. He's, br- we'll he's, he's, yeah. yes, he feels, yeah. he feels demonic. He feels like otherworldly. Right. He doesn't yeah. feel like a, a literal presence. There's, um, uh, I mean, what, jumping around here, but I was, I've been watching uh, Joel Gray interviews recently. I guess he did a, a memoir a couple of years yeah. back. So like a lot of his like 92nd Street Y style sit down, long talk about his whole life. His memoir was called Master of Ceremonies. Well. As it should be, I guess, yes. Uh, um, Yeah, okay. Fosse was, like, so burned by the response to Sweet Charity that he was really at odds with, like, I don't want to be a musical guy. And he said the first cut he saw, that Joel Gray saw, of Cabaret, Fosse did not let a single musical number play out in full. Like, they obviously shot all of this, and there was yeah. a cut of the movie where Fosse was so, like, I just don't want to fucking do the musical thing, that it was, like, you would get either just the first 10 seconds or the last 10 seconds of a song intercut in montage and no full performances. And Joel Gary was like, well, there's my career fucking out the window. And then every producer in the screening was like, Bob, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> This is a Broadway show, Bob. Yeah, they were like, first of all, no one ever sees this version of the movie ever again. Put the songs back in, you lunatic. (laughs) But it's funny to think of, like, Joel Grey watching this version where you have such a strong take on the structure and the musical numbers being so removed from everything and then watching them just kind of remove them literally Mm. from the film and being like, oh, I, I have nothing to do with this movie. Hot take, this movie wouldn't work without the musical numbers. I think they're pretty No, I I don't even... I don't even think that's a hot take. I mean, it's it genuinely <laughs> oh, yeah. this this ignorance of the political unrest outside of the Kit Kat Club is the the whole reason the musical numbers exist. I completely agree, da- David. Let's let's dig into the dossier because this movie certainly has an interesting journey. The the Fossier. The Fossier. I'm sorry. The Bob Fossier. There, there it is. Our our there researcher has decided to call the dossier the Fossier now, which I love. <laughs> um. Yeah. Uh, so, Rachel, have you ever seen Sweet Charity, Bob Fosse's Sweet yes. Charity? Yes, I have. Uh, what do you think of that one? Uh, we just, we just, we just talked about it on the well, show last week. Well, as the world's biggest Cheetah Rivera fan, I am. Mm-hmm. I have to say that I, I do like Sweet Charity. Uh, I haven't oh, yeah. seen it in recent years. Um, I, I, I get the reason why. It probably didn't do well at the time. It probably was ahead of its time in a strange, strange way. Um, but I also, you know, I remember watching Fosse Verdon and seeing all the, you know, d- you know, dramatized behind the scenes of of Sweet Charity, and and it all makes sense and and how they, you know, they didn't think they had a real star at the helm, and right. they, you know, they thought it should have been Gwen Verdon and all these things, but. It served a purpose. It's a it's a musical movie, it, and, it, and it fits that formula of those. Right? It was released uh, what late six was it late sixties? Sixty nine. It's like yeah. the year the Hollywood musical is kind of collapsing. Yeah, because yeah. you just had a whole year, a whole decade of West Side Story and Mary Poppins and all of these incredible mm-hmm. films music, coming out. Oliver, Sound of Music, like, right. and and then the yeah. decade sort of ends with like Hello Dolly and that and Doctor Doolittle and all these like huge cacophonous kind yeah. of 
big disappointment movies that were right. yeah expensive. Uh, but Charity is good. Overhyped. Uh, Charity right. is good. It just yeah. it just didn't it just didn't do well. And it, it's a it's a shitty category to get stuck in of this like genuinely well thought out, well made movie with great performances that just fell in a terrible time for a musical movie to be made or released. It's right. Weird transitional time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. For a guy like Fosse who had been on such a hot streak leading right. up to that movie. And, you know, he's 42 making his first film, but his career was always sort of growing, 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 legacy growing, even when he had, you know, flops, things that didn't work on Broadway. I don't think any of that dinged him as much as Sweet Charity did because it was treated, I think, like, well, he's just that's this isn't his medium. That's not a thing he's good yeah. at. Rather yeah. than this show missed, you know, on Broadway, right. he'd proven himself enough that like if he had a flop. It was like, well, this one didn't work. Um, but right, because Sweet Charity did badly, Fosse's very burned by that. He does not want to go back to stage. I assume he sort of thinks that will look like a retreat mm -hmm. uh, or whatever. So he's trying to get some stuff going. He tried to make a movie a big deal of, on Madonna Street, the uh, Italian film about small-time thieves, right? He's working on that for a while. Just I like that he was like, here. I need a different fucking Italian, I need a different Italian movie, movie right? to turn into a movie musical. Yeah. Uh, that falls apart. Um, he tries to make a movie called The Eagle of Naptown, which is like a sort of Midwestern kid makes good musical uh, thing. It doesn't happen. It eventually gets turned into the movie Breaking Away many years later. Wild. Which wow. is not a musical, of course. No, they're famously. <laughs> <laughs> right. But but uh, for whatever reason, like that project that he started the ball rolling on, like, you know, uh, whatever, yeah. eight or nine years later becomes Breaking Holy Away. Holy shit. Do you see number three here? I do. So he tried, he got connected to a movie called Burnt Offerings, which yeah, is a movie a that we know movie. very well. We know uh, and we pay a lot of respect to. Which I, Rachel, once could not identify. I would like, I'd never heard of it. And then people yelled at me for having never really? heard of this random horror movie from the 70s. Right, Dave, it was like some horror movie I've never heard of. And like a thousand people yelled at us and they were like, canonical. It's a classic. <laughs> it's um, a classic. <laughs> Burnt Offerings, uh, which is not a musical at all, of course. Yeah. But I guess he's just kind of like, well, what if I do a haunted house movie? Um, that doesn't that doesn't come together. Then he goes to dinner. With Neil Simon and Hal Prince, probably a pretty fun dinner. Hmm. <laughs> uh, and Hal Prince says, I was going to make a cabaret movie, but I had to turn it down because I'm too busy preparing to direct company on Broadway. Right. Pretty cool to think about that. Just in general, Hal Prince being like, couldn't do cabaret, have to do company. Anyway, uh, <laughs> obviously... Hal Prince, pretty much the greatest Broadway director of all time, or whatever, you know, however you want to think about it, right? A, a true. Hall of Fame um, mm -hmm. guy. And he tells Fosse, look, yeah, no, it's all set up. They've bought the rights. Liza Minnelli's attached to Star. Jay Preston Allen's writing the script. Cy Fewer is producing it, you know. And Bobby, Bob Fosse, Bobby apparently just corners him and is like, tell me how you did Cabaret. Like, break it down for me every moment. I want to know mm. about this. And after that, he basically just starts lobbying the studio. He's like, I have to do cabaret. You've got to let me a cabaret, um, which uh, was a big pitch because it was a bi you know, big hit show. And he was not the Hollywood Coming was not interested. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Like Hollywood was like, no, the Hollywood tried to get Billy Wilder. They tried to get right. Gene Kelly. They tried to get Joe Mankiewicz. They all said no. And so 
Uh, and I like this quote. I like this quote. This is Emmanuel Wolf at Allied Artists, which is the movie, the, the studio that made this movie. He said that I knew the best time to get a talented director was after a failure. So it's sort of like that idea of like, you know, he's been knocked down a peg. He'll be whatever, hungry. He'll be ready to, you know, earn everyone's respect back. That's why that's why he went for Fosse. I, I want to just put a pin in Jay Preston Allen and make sure we do a little Jay Preston Allen sidebar in a bit. I we keep sure. moving forward through this uh, narrative. Well, we'll talk about it. It, it, com- it comes up again Great. because okay. there was a lot of fighting over the script. But Jay Preston Allen is a legend. I assume that's what you want to. I a up. fucking legend, and I think an undersun leg- legend. And I want to talk about her a little bit. But let's let's move through time. Sure. Uh, anyway, yeah, they bring on Bob Fosse, and uh, yeah, I mean, look. Rachel, you mentioned you watched Fosse Verde, and you're aware of the legend around this guy. He was he's a pain in the neck. He's <laughs> he's, he's, he's a huge. He's, yeah. he's a very strong personality. He's very difficult to control. He uh, you know he wants he clashes with every producer he works with. He immediately uh, starts fighting over like you know the cinematographer they're going to hire, all that kind of stuff. But I want to note something. Mm. He is not the one who has the idea to eliminate all the songs that are not set at the club. That had already been established by the producer, Cy Fewer. He was the one who was like, we need to do that. And Bob Fosse agreed. Like I, I like you say, Griff, I don't want to make a classic musical because he's burned by Sweet Charity. Mm-hmm. I want to do you know, a diegetic musical where we're not just having people singing as they walk down the street and hanging laundry or whatever. He thinks... He thinks like they've got to break the mold on that. Now I love people singing while they hang the laundry, personally. But me too. Yeah. But I get that in the sixties that maybe had just gotten stayed or whatever, right? You know, just the idea of doing something different was exciting. Yeah, it's so funny here. There's this fewer quote. As I saw it, if one or two of the numbers didn't work, we had a flop. On the other hand, if all eight worked and the picture was a little short on dramatic direction, we could still have a hit. My bet was on the numbers. I had to protect the musical numbers, and there's nobody better on musical numbers than Bob Fosse. Sweet Charity is like a movie where every musical number is a showcase, not just for choreography, but like his filmmaking techniques. And then this is a movie where it feels like in a certain way agreeing to do the musical numbers is the thing that gave him the access to do the other parts of the movie that he was maybe more excited to do or just show that he could do a test himself for the first time, you know? Right. Sure. Um, yeah, he he was given not much money, 175 grand and 7.5% of the profits, which I think was a good deal for him eventually. Good, yeah, yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Pretty good. Um, he, tiny budget. This movie had a $3 million budget. It's very cheaply made, which is crazy. Um, and he goes to Berlin to start, you know, or I think Berlin, it's certainly Germany. They shot this in Germany, um, to, to start work. But, uh, yeah, but he does, he brings in Neil Simon to try and rewrite Jay Preston Allen's script. Cause she does, he doesn't like, uh, whatever. He doesn't like various things about it. He's, he's look, he's a pain in the ass. Like I love his movies, but every time you read about him, he just seems like a huge pain in the ass. Yes. Yeah. He bring, bring in another guy, Hugh Wheeler. Uh, who worked on the script and they tried to get him a co-writing credit, but he didn't get one. Uh, he's listed as a research consultant. But what do you want to say about Jay Allen, Griff? I, I mean, first of all, if you just hit the bullet points, right, of her career at a time mm. where there are very, very few female screenwriters and very, very yes. few uh, real careers, you know, that span decades. She fucking writes Marty. Yeah. Adapts the Prime of Mystery and Brody. Amazing movie. Cabaret. Mm-hmm. 
And then, like, in the 80s, I mean, other stuff in between, obviously. Funny lady, uh, right. Right. But in the 80s, like, rebuilds herself with fucking Sidney Lumet as, like, the most, like, fucking hard-edged, brutal, like, Prince of the City, and then does Death Trap with him. Like, she's Mm -hmm. uh, incredible. Uh, And, right, fucking uh, uncredited on La Cage did the Prime Minister Gene Brody adaptation for Broadway as well. But she's one of these people where, like, A, she's kind of one of those uh, amazing undersung secret script doctors who, like, worked on fucking everything. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. at a certain point got so burned out on the industry where she was like, just send me the fucking thing. Tell me how many days I have. Pay me the money and I'll fix it. Right. Like, I don't need to play this whole game. I'll just come in here and be a surgeon. But she, like, I, I don't know. I, I think she, if you read about her... And her, like, tenacity. And and her stubbornness. I mean, she was, like, I think notoriously a, uh, a difficult pain in the ass person as well, like Fosse. And a lot of her best collaborations with were with people who were also sort of perfectionist control freaks. She, she has a great quote about Fosse here, which is, I didn't find him the happiest collaborator I ever had. For a man who dealt with women as much as he was obliged to, let's say he had an extremely parochial view of women. So she was definitely she, looking at him askance as he was trying to like tear her script up or whatever. But uh, she does get the credit and the Oscar nomination. Yeah. Uh, she lost her friends for Coppola, obviously. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's cool. She's a badass. I don't know. Yeah, she, yeah, she wanted to be an actress. She was frustrated by it. She got married too young. And then she was like, I, I need some way to support myself to get out of this marriage. And then was like, I don't know. I'll write. If you write, <laughs> you have no boss. And I read a lot. And she just, like, <laughs> fucking wrote a novel and a play and then started writing screenplays and was just like, yeah, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm just going to write. Like, the, she is one of those people I find fascinating in that I don't think she ever accepted credit for how uh, much of a trailblazer she was. Sure. Because she was just like, what are you talking about? I just sat down at a typewriter and I wrote shit. Uh, she also did, what's it called? Just tell me what you want. That's the, uh, her... Right. her her novel, which is kind of a you know um, big corporate satire, that's a crazy movie. That's a Sydney yeah. Lumet movie as well. Anyway, Jay Presnell. Anyway, Jay Presnell. Uh, everyone's fighting. Um, they're fighting over what cinematographer to hire. He wants to hire Robert Surtees, who he did Sweet Charity with. Cypher, the producer, is like, no, you can't go over the top like that again. Uh, eventually, you know, he's he's suggesting like huge names to him. Eventually, they settle on Jeffrey Onsworth, who's the guy who shot two thousand and one. Like no no chump, obviously. Yeah. Um, but there's a big fight about that. I don't know. You know, it's just it's a lot of the. It's one of these movies where like everything about the creative process seems to be like tension and fighting and not enough money and sort of everything's held t- t- together with tape and glue. And then they produce a masterpiece. But then when you sit any of them down, they're like, I don't know. It could have been better. And I'm like, I don't know. The movie's pretty good, guys. Like, take take, take, take comfort in what you did. I also just think, I, I think there's a genuine palpable sense of mania and desperation sure. baked into this movie that cannot be faked. You know? Like, yeah. I, I think when you hear that the production was that much of a nightmare and that no one thought the movie was working out. This isn't one of those cases where you're like, how is that possible? You must have been looking at the dailies every day and feeling like you fucking won the lottery. I'm like, I can imagine this being a bummer (laughs) to work on. I can imagine everyone feeling weird making this movie. Uh, Liza Minnelli obviously had gotten passed over for the stage role. 
uh, in in Broadway. Even though she was a Tony winner at the age of nineteen, and she was Judy Garland's daughter, uh, they thought she couldn't do the English accent because the role is traditionally an English girl, Sally Bowles. Uh, and then and she, she does sterile cuckoo after that. Yeah, and okay. you know becomes a, a big enough star that by the time the movie's coming around, she is like part of the draw. She's part of the reason it's getting you know funded. Um, right. But she claims. When she didn't get the accent, they said we're going to cast... When she didn't get the accent right, they said they're going to cast someone else. She says, that's fine. I'll just do the movie. I was young and I just knew it. <laughs> and then whatever. Uh, a few years later, you know, she goes to meet with a producer and she sings Cabaret for him, the song Cabaret. And uh, he said, you got it. And that so that's so, when I got it. So funny. And the coolest thing, I think, of course, is that she designs the whole look of Sally Bowles herself. Like, Sally Bowles doesn't usually look like this. She's usually blonde on stage, uh, you know, in previous productions or whatever. And her dad, uh, Vincent Minnelli, one of the greatest directors who ever (laughs) lived, Uh uh, who understands movie musicals better than anyone, basically, shows her lots of pictures of Louise Brooks and is like, you know, this was hot stuff in the 30s. Like, this is... You know, you don't you don't don't just think like Marlena Dietrich. Don't just think like blonde movie idol. Like, and so Joel Gray cut her hair for her. She she dyes it black. She does the you know the look that she's got. The sort of uh, how do you describe it? She uh, looks like you know, an owl, like a bowl cut, but with a little point. Right, the widow's peak. Yes, right. Yes, and she knocks on Fosse's door the night before they start shooting and says, "What do you think?" I wish I could do Liza. Can you do Liza, Rachel? Can anyone do um, Liza? <laughs> No, um, not 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 offensively. I feel like uh, I would yeah. offend her, <laughs> right. and I don't want to do that. It's very easy to do to do a corny Liza. I can do a singing Liza, not a speaking Liza. Very can fair. I do my terrible speaking Liza, please? Yeah, and we'll cut it out. What do you think? <laughs> uh, yep, let's cut that out. That's, <laughs> no, yeah, I'm that's sure. more Arrested Development, like <laughs> right. uh, oh, like Lucille too, being like yeah. Basta. Basta. <laughs> <laughs> In Wasson's account, she's uh, basically the, the 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 account is that she said, "What do you think? Do you like it?" And Fosse said, "What if I hadn't?" But that meant that he did like it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, and Joel Gray, Bob Fosse doesn't want to cast him. He's like, "No, no uh, you're the theater guy. You're the you know you did this on stage." He looked at every other actor. Joel Gray says he was heartbroken by this. I, yeah. I just have to laugh at Bob Fosse being like, "No, you're a theater guy." Like, yeah, you know, well, yeah. <laughs> no, look but in it's the so mirror, my I, friend. <laughs> but, well, absolutely, he's like terrified by the fact that I think people view him that way as the theater guy. Well, right. yeah, that 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 could be said for a lot of horrible things he said to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, right. The other, yes, there's a lot of self-loathing in Bob Fosse, yes. which is borne out by in, all in, that jazz. Robert the most Fosse? self-loathing yeah. film ever made. Yes, yes, yes. Um, all that jazz is the most self-loathing film ever made. Right, it really is. Right, he's just like, take a look at me, and we're yeah, like, damn. whoa, Bob, this fucking uh, sucks. <laughs> it's showtime. It's so good though. Uh, but what also what Joel Gray thinks is that Bob Fosse secretly wanted to play the part yes. himself. Yeah. Now this yeah. is Joel Gray. Joel Gray's opinion on that but that makes some sense obviously like Jeff Bob Fosse a great actor and performer in his own right had never really gotten to do it you know have a big role in a movie yeah I don't know and who kind of started when he was a kid like as a tap dancer in vaudeville Mm -hmm. like it just makes sense 
Yeah. Wh- which I think Bob Fosse also relates to the Sally Bowles thing we talked about in the last episode, but the thing where he was like, all I want to do is just be a song and dance man. And everyone was like, there's something creepy to you. Like, <laughs> sure. you're not Gene Kelly. There, there's right. You're not happy, you know? Yeah. I think there's more of himself in both of these characters than maybe he'd even want to admit. Um, but but perhaps, yeah, I don't know. I watched this long interview with Joel Gray, and he was saying that he really felt like it was Fosse keeping him down and sort of, you know, kind of wishing away whenever the producers went, like, just hire Joel Gray. He was like, I don't know, I don't know. That doesn't feel like the right thing. Let's see more people. And there was no one else who was ever a serious option. And Joel Gray said that he heard there was a moment where they said to Fosse, it's either you or it's Joel Gray. Like, they they sort of challenged him, and when they finally challenged him point blank that he was like, it's great. Like, when the producers finally sort of said, like, are you trying to get this part for yourself? He then was like, I know I fucking should do it. He's right. going to do it better. Because right. at this point, how old is he as well? Like, I mean... He's not, 45, not, right? Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's, I mean, not that you can't do this role at 45. It's a it's an ageless role in many ways. Well, I mean, Alan Cumming is still doing it, you know? He's yeah. still doing it. It, it yeah. does feel like a role you can't shake. Like, Joel Gray obviously yes. did it, you know, uh, twice on Broadway. Alan Cumming has done it twice on Broadway yeah. and on the West. You know, like, it does feel like a role that kind of, like, sort of defines you, even even if you do lots of other stuff. Well, it it's one of the most haunting roles ever written for a st- for someone on stage i think like it's such a haunting part and the i mean the even just by the the act two songs given to the mc with with um uh i don't care much like yeah. that th- those those songs resonate throughout the entirety of someone's career let alone the political aspects of the song in the show that i can't imagine if i if i had the opportunity to play that role i would be playing it well into my 80s if they'd let me wait rachel you should play the mc that would you be cool i would love it i do think having a woman play the mc might defeat the purpose of the character but I, I've seen it done very well before. I will I've say. seen it in a high school production and I was confused. So I, okay. <laughs> but okay. that, that but could it's be supposed the fact that it was high school. Yeah. It could yeah, be sure. the fact that it was a 17 year old person. The Joel Gray interview, I keep on going back to because I just thought yes. it was really fascinating. He said that when he was cast in the show on Broadway, he had no fucking idea how to play the character. Mm. And that everyone just kept being like, Joel, you got this. And he's like, I don't. I have no handle on this. I have no grip on this. I cannot figure out. It feels like this is such a sort of turnkey for the whole show sure, that I really have is. to he's set right, a tone yeah. and a mood. And I don't know what the right level of – because he is such an inscrutable character. Like what is the thing I'm holding on to here? And that he went to a comedy club and he saw a comedian who was just so nakedly uh, desperate – uh, to be mm. loved that he mm. saw this like incredibly uncomfortable performance by someone who could not hide their desperation to win over the crowd and mm. he was like this is so off-putting and unbecoming and it it tilts over into scary and he was like that's the root of the thing for me that there's mm. this weird energy of like he's he wants it too much he's trying right. a little sure. too yeah. hard that's interesting because I think of him as so confident yeah, right. in, in the movie. right? But he was like, that's the element that makes it uncomfortable that I latched onto. Mm. 
And then I think what's smart about that is it's like, right, that's the ultimately the scariest thing about this show is like, this guy is willing to win over Nazis. If yes. they're the people in the audience, he will right. play to them. It's right. it's just this like obsessive serving of whoever the crowd is. And it's the mirror, you know, right. the weird yes. twisted mirror that he's in front of. A, um, black, a black mirror almost. Exactly. It is funny how much, though, for how iconic these two performances are, and both of them win their Oscars, Mm -hmm. that, like, they both have incredibly limited film careers for people who are considered major movie stars. They both don't do much. They're very sporadic. Yeah, I mean, they both have very robust careers as entertainers. Yes. Especially Liza, obviously, is just sort of like a name onto herself forever, right? right? But yeah, you, you'd think Liza would like do a bunch more movies off of this. She doesn't even do a movie for three years after. She does Lucky Lady three years later, which is a Stanley Donut movie with Gene Hackman and Burt Reynolds that I've never right. seen that I'm sure I don't was a bomb. And, and then played, after that, yeah. Cameo as herself in silent movie, Matter of Time with her right. father. Then New York, New York is like her next big ass movie, which she's so good in. I mean, Phenomenal. I love her in New York, New York, but that movie obviously is a bomb at the time. Then and then four Arthur, years until Arthur, King of Comedy, she plays herself. Muppet Take Manhattan, she plays herself. Then yeah. Rent a Cop. Then Arthur Two on the Rocks. You know, yeah, she it's, basically just doesn't do it much. Yeah, that's you know, right. she did Sex in the th- City Two. She plays herself. Like, Stepping Out and The O in Ohio are her last two movies that she played other people in. And, and yeah, and then Arrested Development is, like, most of her work. I mean, she, obviously she's... Iconic. Yeah, Incredibly she's iconic. Probably most uh, most millennials' introduction to Liza Minnelli yes. is Lucille Ostero. Yeah, I feel like that might be the only way certain people know is that she's Lucille, too. But you look at Joel Grey and it's like post-cabaret, Man on a Swing, 7% Solution, Buffalo Bill, right? Yeah. Then nine years until Remo Williams. Then six yeah. years until Kafka. Then it's yeah. like the player as himself. No, it's yeah, yeah, I mean, it's he went. He, really, well, yeah. he went to stage primarily too. Yeah. I mean, because yeah. Joel Grey then went and, you know, iconically did Wicked. He did the Anything Goes revival with right. Sutton Foster and everything. And he did Cabaret many times. Like, yes, yeah, he did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's he, a, it's and he, just... he, he was Amos in the uh, Chicago uh, right. revival. You know, the, the Chicago yeah. we all know that's still running. Yes. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, he is an A-lister on Broadway forever and, right, yeah. no, a, a character actor in movies. You're not mentioning that he's Doc on Buffy, Griffin. A, I'm a sorry. Huge, I guess I forgot you've never yeah. seen Buffy, right. Oh, well. Did he do Alias two probably i don't know yeah uh alias okay uh no it's, uh, it's three just, episodes of alias yeah there you go. it's it's fascinating i just think how defined both of them are by these roles yeah i think it's hard to shake i you know i and that's fine like it's better and like joel gray beat out al pacino and the rest of the cast of the godfather Robert Duvall, an oscar Kong. And no one really, you know, objected to that. They maybe object to Al Pacino not having an Oscar, but they don't, you know, it's like, huh. it's not like he lost to some chump. Uh, anyway. Um, Who was the, the non-Godfather, non-Cabaret nominee? I can look it up for you. Yeah. Um, I, I know. Because I, you just said we'll talk about the Oscars later, but I have to know. You have to know. Because well, Cabaret uh, won eight of them, right? Eight? Yeah. Cabaret won eight Oscars to the Godfather's three, but it did not win Best Picture. Right. And Joel Gray did win Best Supporting Actor. Oh, of course, Eddie Albert and the Heartbreak Kid. Oh, yes. Great yes. performance. Great performance. Three Godfathers, Joel Gray and Eddie Albert. 
obviously Al Pacino should have been in the lead, but whatever. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Ben. Ben has a question. Ben's hand ben. went up. Well, yeah, I I'm hoping I'm not interrupting the flow here. I just I gotta ask on behalf of people who are not familiar with cabaret. Like, what is up with the source material? Great what question. Is this? Great. It is great wild yeah. to me. Because what it's technically it, two things, right? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Two ben, things, two y- books. You will be more confused when we tell you the journey yeah. to this becoming a fucking musical. Well, Christopher Isherwood, uh, who's just one of those guys who just the kind of guy you want to be, just an English guy who wears a scarf who you know, wrote plays and movies, but also diaries and novels mm-hmm. and wrote his own memories. And, uh, you know, one of the most important uh, members of like, you know, the sort of gay liberation in, in, in literature. Uh, but as you're saying, David, like his fiction work was as interesting as his life. And he great. was the best at telling his life. He wrote a book called Goodbye to Berlin, which is about his life in Berlin during the end of the Jazz Age, during the end of the Weimar Republic, right? And it's about his sort of fascination with this cabaret singer named Jean Ross uh, and how he helped her get an abortion and all that. So, like, that's that's the basic source material. He's the Michael York character. Right. right. And then there's a movie called, and a play, a movie and a play called I Am a Camera that's based on that, that this is kind of springing out of more than the book, I guess, is the best way it's to like put it. It's like a copy of a copy of a copy. Right. Right. And, and when they first tried to turn this into a musical, the approach was act one is a review. It's a Kit Kat club, a night at, at the Kit Kat club. And then act two is straight dramatic play. Uh, right. It's, it's technically a fair assessment still to this day that the first act is all fun and games until somebody starts singing Tomorrow Belongs to Me at a party. And then when I first, when I saw it, my boyfriend had never seen it before. When I saw it here on the West End, my boyfriend was not familiar with anything having to do with cabaret and didn't see the Nazi plot coming. And I was like, really? <laughs> and he, <laughs> But he genuinely didn't see it coming. And it wasn't until... The, the guy from the train that the character Cliff is doing all of this bidding for in Paris takes off his jacket and is wearing a red armband that my boyfriend was like, oh, they're Nazis. You like look at the calendar and it's yeah. like 1930. And you're like, Berlin, ah, shit. 1931. They're World War One had happened. Yeah. World War Two. Wait, when yeah. did that but start? Got, I mean, okay. And then I, well, I and I, I was asking people who had just recently saw it, and I was like, "Were you familiar with it?" But they all, they too, didn't see it coming, which I think is really, uh, which is the success of the show is that it it proper distracts you from yeah. what you you're should be fun. thinking about. Yeah, you're, you're having at the cabaret. fun. Life is a cabaret, and it's fantastic. And in light, in here, life is beautiful. And Act One is all the fun songs, basically, exactly. like all and the upbeat songs. As most musicals of that era tend to be, is that Act One is all fun and games, and then Act Two is like death, and that's and that's it. <laughs> you, you, I mean, you were in a musical that is very yes. like that, yes. Yeah, uh, and the only Act Two respite you got was like a number about police brutality. <laughs> that was what you got in West Side. So, well, and that was—it's often like a struggle when they try to adapt these things for movies, where they're just like. The, this you, is you, right. This this is a lot at the back half of this. You can bump get away out. with right, sort of sure. the grand tragedy. I remember Frank Oz saying when he screened, uh, when they uh, uh, tested uh, Little Shop of Horrors and they had the mm-hmm. original ending where Audrey 
too just takes over the world and eats everybody. Everybody dies. Yeah. Seymour feeds <laughs> Audrey. He dies. Everyone dies, right? And the audience just like fucking revolted. And it always worked off Broadway. And he was like, the difference is at the end of a live stage show, the curtain comes up and right. the whole cast comes bow. out and they take a bow and everyone feels a sense of relief. Yeah. And when right. you watch people die in a movie, then you just walk out and they remain dead. <laughs> like you're just yeah. back in the real world, you know? It's true. And in a, on a Broadway show, you're like, they're going to do that again tomorrow. Like, you know, right. there's also right. that kind of feeling of, yeah, yeah. Right. But like West yeah. Side Story and Cabaret are unique. Not, not the only ones, but they're unique examples of like they worked being translated to movies with endings of like doomed inevitability. I mean, I watched this with someone who had never seen it before. Uh, a friend of mine who fell asleep uh, in the last like 20 minutes and then uh, Paramount Plus started auto playing Footloose which I'll (laughs) say it's pretty jarring to go from the end of this movie to like it's a Kevin Bacon (laughs) but it's also about Footloose is also about autocracy it is it's about dance fascism it is it is but but it was still a splash of cold water right and Mm -hmm. uh, she says I'm sorry I fell asleep what happened at the end and I went like, oh. you know, like the Nazis win. I, it's, it's, <laughs> they're they're fucking, coming. Yeah. I don't have to tell you. The whole thing's bad. The Nazis. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know how else you're going to end Cabaret. But Cabaret has a weird, unsettling ending. Like, it, it's not like West Side Story where someone gets shot and people are crying. Curtain. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, which mm-hmm. I love the end of West Side Story, to be clear. But it's it's a <laughs> punctuation. Whereas Cabaret is just this kind of stomachache at the end where you're kind of just like, Oh God! Right, it's only going to yeah. get worse from here. Yes. Well, and and even like if you could see her, which is probably quote unquote the most fun number in the second half, yeah, right. ends with this horrible mic drop. Right. Yes. Right. You're like, oh, this number, it's fun and goof. We're back into like good times, and then Joel Gray like looking you dead in the eyes and saying like, a Jew. Um. Yeah. Uh. Okay. Okay, Michael York. I want to shout out briefly, Michael York. Um, Logan's Run. Let's all let's let's shift gears and talk about Logan's Run. Are you are you a Logan's <laughs> Run fan? Are you a Logan's Runner? It was one of the. Are you a Logan's Runner? You know what, Rachel? That is a TCM classic. It plays on TCM it, all the it time. Is. It's true. It's always on fucking TCM. So that's I don't why, know why I've seen it so many times. I guess um, it's an MGM movie. They just own it. They're like, I, sure, it throw on Rogue's Run. It must be one of those things. It really must yeah. be. Because I remember being so wildly uncomfortable the first time I saw it. And now I can't associate Michael York with anything else. Hmm. So every Logan's time, run. like, and I forgot he was in this movie because I have not seen this movie in a long time. And when I rewatched mm-hmm. it, I was like, oh my God, it's Logan's Run. Uh, I got a hot take on Michael York. Yeah, oh. what's that? You think his you think his best work was on Gilmore Girls? I agree. I think his oh. best work was on Gilmore Girls. But One, also, he he is good on Gilmore Girls. He's also hot on Gilmore he's, Girls, which he's is hot. supposed to be the idea. Obviously, it makes right. sense yeah. why Paris yeah. loves him. Sorry, and look, the, the man aged well, continues to to look good. Yeah, but when you see just a, a splash of young York in like this or Logan's Run or whatever, you're like, fuck. Yeah. What a face he's, this guy has. He's really Very good chiseled. looking in, Ro- in Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. He plays Tibble. Oh, and he, right. I forgot. Well, Rachel, yes. that's exactly it. He had just popped in Ra- Romeo and Juliet. And so okay. Fosse puts out a casting call looking for a, quote, Michael York type. And ah. Michael York, York calls his agent and is like, do you think I could qualify for this? <laughs> he basically is like, I heard you were looking for a Michael York type. My name's Would Michael York. Would be really, really embarrassing if Fosse said no. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, no, I was looking for a Michael York type. Uh, no, yeah. uh, so he brings in 
Michael York, uh, who right, who which who is really good in Romeo and Juliet, and that that was sort of his breakout. I guess he was in uh, that very early Merchant Ivory movie, The Guru, as well. Oh, um, weird. But but yeah, um, I've I've another hot, uh, Michael York hot take. Okay, you think he's hot? G- good voice. Does anyone <laughs> yeah, else in of... history sound like Michael York? Hello, like, Austin. Just, yeah, like the way he's yeah, he well, has a very like, captivating the, speaking right. voice. It's like I don't even Turned know. Turned out she was a fembot. Right. Both <laughs> Sadly, we we knew all along. That's one oh of my, my favorite God, jokes. Oh my God! I forgot he did do that. <laughs> he's Basil Exposition. Oh yeah. But like, it's that role. I mean, I was so kept. That was like obviously my fucking franchise as a child. But like, I was so captivated by him in that. Where it's just like the way this guy says everything. Yeah. It's so bizarre. And his role in that movie is literally just to deliver exposition. Yes. But yes. he is very, I mean, Austin. him saying, sadly, we knew all along in the second yes. movie, which, and it's just dismissed, is so funny. Uh, the whole yes. scene with his mother. I just think, like, it, both the resonance of his voice, and then he's got Austin. this very odd speaking rhythm that is so unique. Yeah, he's, you know, it's 1972. He wants to figure out how we're going to play this character. The character is presented as bisexual. Uh, in the movie, Isherwood was gay, but I mean, even presenting him as uh, bisexual in 1972 was, you know, relatively daring for a studio movie. Uh, Isherwood doesn't like it. Isherwood says that he thinks that it, the movie sort of considers homosexuality a kink, not like an identity. I don't know if I agree with that because I always watch this movie and just think like he's gay. He's not That's what I really. think too. Yes. Because like. He basically says, like, I've never been able to make it work with women except for Liza Minnelli. Like, you know, that that's the only one where he has a connection. Right. But, like, he largely seems gay. And even, like, the the jealousy that he gets of the of Max is not really based in the fact that he wants the attention of Sally. He wants the attention of Max. So, yeah, yeah I always kind of viewed even, like, the, the Cliff Bradshaw character in the stage show. I just always consider that character to be to be gay but i don't know what the does it has anyone ever made the definitive intention behind the character known or was it has it always been this kind of very vague it always shifts i think you know there's been various productions that do things various ways and obviously isherwood was gay so if you want to take it all the way back to him then there you go but like yeah no i think it's this is the thing that's funny about cabaret it's it's been a lot of different things over the years and You know, there's songs that, you know, money and maybe this time, you know, they're put in for this movie and then the stage shows after this movie take them because they're like, well, those are good songs. We'll keep them. But like they weren't in the original production uh, and things like that. It's just funny. I I have seen this movie many times. Uh, Humble brag. Uh, I uh, I have never once uh, thought of this character as bisexual. I, I truly am like, this is a gay man who has a relationship with he's a woman. He's trying to make it work, which, sure. Right, right. Not, not to uh, paint with too broad a brush, but he's neither the first nor the last gay man to only be able to make a relationship with a woman work with Liza Minnelli, right? Yes. I mean, you're, like, you're referring the, you know, to, the, uh, what's, uh, what's his name? Peter Allen. <laughs> yes, go on, go on, yes. Several, I'm referring to possibly several people. Uh-huh. But I, I, do, I do think it's... He he outright says, I tried, it didn't work, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I think they have such a unique bond that he is able to engage with it more, but he he knows it isn't where I mean it's it's her heartbreaking scene with the like uh where she's talking about 
if they had the baby and like how long before I need to get up, perform at some CD club again and how long before you and she can't finish yeah. the sentence right. again. And it's like we both know what we innately are. Right. I'm always going to need to perform and you're always going to want to be in the arms of another man. Hmm. It's a little tragic, um, yeah. much like lots of things in cabaret. Mm-hmm. All right. They make the movie. They're in Germany. Uh, because they're in Germany, nobody can really tell Bob Fosse what to do because no one's <laughs> actually there. At one point, he got a telegram from the studio saying he was using too much smoke in the Kit Kat Club and he tore it up and threw it over his shoulder. Uh, there's a really good quote about how he was so intense that he would smoke cigarettes and not know that they were done. So they would be about to burn his mouth and people would come and pick cigarettes out of his mouth because he was about to hurt himself and he would not even notice. Just just sort awesome. of yeah, you know, crazy person. Yeah. And uh, he's obviously doing all the choreography and is sort of like trying to balance the Bob Fosse-ness with the sort of like, this is supposed to be a seedy 1930s club. They wouldn't look, their dances wouldn't look like Bob Fosse dances. But, right. you know, so it's like that weird sort of balance that he's trying to strike, uh, being a little less elaborate, I guess. Yeah, I also think this movie looks dirty in a fascinating way. Like, this is obviously the same year as The Godfather, which is a movie that is infamous for how much, uh, how radical the darkness of its cinematography yeah. was, right? The whole Gordon Willis, like, dark, dark colors, shadows kinds of things. But it's clean looking yeah. in its darkness. And this movie looks like underexposed. It's the smoke. It's the color palette. It's the dinginess of every room, you know, of the clothes. Everything is so... Um, yes. Especially when you compare it to Sweet Charity, which is so sort of meticulously designed. Everything in this movie feels really cluttered and dirty wanted, and kind of obscure. He wanted it to be dark. Uh, he wanted it to be smoky, as I said. Jeffrey Unsworth initially was like, well, I wanted it to be kind of Bertolt Brechty. I wanted it to be like hard and cold. And Fosse was like, no, soft and smoky. And Jeffrey Unsworth says that was the right move. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, thing, everything was so dark, and they didn't have monitors back then that uh, they were worried that things would literally become come back unviewable, like yes. like just so underdeveloped that it would be underexposed, that it would be just uh, really really dark. Um, but it all worked. And at a certain point, I'm sorry, I just have to these these little anecdotes are so funny. Uh, Cy Fewer, the producer, tried to steal Bob Fosse's filters. Uh, because he was like, You're, it's too dark, it's too dark. And uh, his uh, the woman that Bob Fosse was having an affair with on set, whose name was uh, Ilse Schwarzwald, uh, diverted him and gave him some fake filters to throw away. So the producer like actually tried to throw away Bob Fosse's lens you know, camera <laughs> oh filters and, and was distracted uh, from it. Uh, Vilmos Jigmond at the time uh, saw this movie and got fired from Funny Lady, which he was try- which he was the cinematographer for, because he was trying to make it look like cabaret. Because he was like, "That's what musicals should look like now," and he got fired. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. So, and then, and of course, Gwen Verdon, mm-hmm. who is so crucial to Sweet Charity, she's on set for this. She's helping design Liza's clothes. She's going to like jer- you know Berlin vintage stores to find like cool thirties clothes she for her. She found the monkey suit, didn't she? Wasn't she that her? found the monkey <sighs> suit. Monkey Absolutely. Suit. Yeah. They yeah. the studio had sent some kind of blue velour monkey suit, and she 
uh, was like, this won't work, and finds a real gorilla costume and like flies it to Munich. It's Munich, not Berlin, where they're shooting it. Of okay. course, because Berlin would have been under the Iron Curtain. What am I thinking? Um, David, and, David, uh, David, David, what were you What was I thinking? thinking? And she also walks in on Fosse, you know, sleeping with this other woman, and it's a huge, it's basically the last straw. Bob Fosse was them. sleeping you with a woman? <sighs> and Bob Fosse, oh, you know, he was a philanderer. Which one? Which one, exactly. David? Jeez. Uh, a couple other things on money. Initially, uh, Gwen Verdon wanted to dress uh, Jill Graham, Liza Minnelli as bums, but once he dressed Liza Minnelli as a bum, apparently she looked so much like Judy Garland dressed as a tramp that it was distracting. So they instead oh, were like, "Okay, no. we'll make them look rich. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll, uh, yeah, you know, have them wear monocles and top hats and all that." And during Money, Money, uh, Fosse kept being like more sexual, like you know, pelvis thrusts, all this kind of stuff. He tells Minnelli. You know, at one point, you weren't as serious and sexual as I wanted you to be. Liza Minnelli starts crying. Then he goes over to Joel Gray. He knocks on Joel Gray's door and he says, it didn't come out the way I wanted it to. I w- it wasn't sexual enough. It wasn't serious enough. And Joel Gray said, too bad. I'm sorry to hear that. And closed the door. <laughs> <laughs> so what more d- people, that's what more people should have done to Bob Vazi in his life. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's too bad, Bob. Look, you got some takes. So like, I hope you enjoy it. What Actually, an maybe icon. that's how I want to respond when anyone criticizes me on any count. Yeah. Too bad. I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, I'm Slam. so sorry that you think that. <laughs> Too bad. Ah, God damn. Um, and, you know, then they f- they make the movie and then they cut it together. The They get a PG rating because she was initially, uh, sp- he was initially going to say, oh, fuck Maximilian. And she replies, I do. I they turned do. it to screw Maximilian because they knew that might get them in trouble. And that's what gets them a PG rating. But you also have to remember there's no PG-13 at this point. Yeah, it, right, there's The, the right. gulf is huge between the two. Yeah. 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 Uh, and it comes out, and it's a gigantic hit, and it wins eight Oscars. And, of course, Bob Fosse's only reaction is, I can't believe I lost Best Picture, though, to The Godfather. To The Godfather. Still, nonetheless, he's like, yeah. ah. And so he thinks he could have done even better. But it, that's, it is that funny. is the story of Cabaret. I mean, Godfather was the highest grossing film of that year, right? Uh, yeah, Godfather is a hit upon hits, yes. Right, this must have almost been seen as more of like the Critics Darling movie, which is yeah, odd absolutely. to think about. But yes. it, it was it was certainly a big hit, but nothing like yes, it was the, right. the, the It was the sixth biggest hit of the year, which is, that's pretty good. Absolutely, but Godfather was like a blockbuster. Yeah, yes. it's Godfather right. far and above anything that year, and then the Poseidon Adventure, What's Up Doc, right. uh, the, which is a great movie. Uh, Deliverance and Jeremiah Johnson, two kind of like, you know, country uh, thrillers. And God, can you, can you imagine again a year where the five best picture nominees mirror the top five highest grossing films of the year that closely? Hmm. Uh huh. Okay. Oh, like Godfather. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Deliverance, Cabaret. You're right. You're right. I mean, it's a good year in film. An excellent year. The nominees for Best Picture that year are The Godfather, Cabaret, Deliverance, Sounder, which is a great movie. Oh, right. Martin Ritt movie. And The Immigrants, the, um, you know. uh, Oh, sure. uh, Jen Troll. It's a Swedish movie with Max on Sido and stuff. Anyway, it's a good year. It's a good year. You also Uh, got like Sleuth that year. You got The Heartbreak Kid. You got Fat City. Got a lot of good. Lady Sings the Blues. You know, Diana Ross Mm, sort of successfully moving to serious acting. Uh, You know, a lot of good stuff. This movie opens with a number called Vilkeman. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so did this podcast, if anyone remembers. It did. Wow. Uh, another commonality between uh, this movie and this podcast. They all, both open with a, a mischievous, uh, possibly dangerous puck-like figures uh, wow. welcoming you into a wow. hostile environment. I played <laughs> puck in high school, Griff. Did you know that? No, really? Yep. I played puck in, in a Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, I thought you meant in a, a stage production of uh, the real world. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, but but Joel Gray immediately just sort of like sets the tone of the entire film, right? It's so important. Um, yes, yeah. Joel Gray's performance, yes, and tone. Yes. Go ahead, Rachel. But I have to say that Liza Minnelli has the worst entrance in the movie. Like she's such. Yes. It's such a. It's it's so disappointing. Because mm. he just kind of tosses, he's just like, and also Sally Bowles is here. And then she's, she's just, just kind of like, hey! Sally Bowles! And then that's yeah, it. Right. That's literally it. And then, like, the next scene you see her with the, when Michael York moves into the building. But it's so, I don't, I remember, that was, like, one of the notes I took when I watched it last night. was, like, where the hell was her entrance? She's Liza freaking Minnelli. I know she's they just of, yeah another yeah. one of the performers right like it's it's that yeah. weird kind of mundaneness which, I mean my my hair is a good number of oh mine hair is one of my favorite yeah. stage numbers ever but I it, I do wonder if it was intentional in the way that like she probably felt unimportant right. in that club and maybe that was the reason but it did feel like maybe considering she's the lead actress of the that like that entrance should have been. Roll. A bit, yeah. just a bit more something. I don't know, because like on on stage, her entrance is incredible. It's mm-hmm. it's it's show stopping. There's nothing like, be, you know, being a Broadway show. I was just talking about this Griff that's with, mm-hmm. on the Sweet Charity episode, right? Where like you know, the whole audience is just kind of like trembling with excitement, waiting for the, the star, star yeah. to yeah. drop in and like for them all to lose their mind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how in- how important do you think Sally Bowles is to the Kit Kat Club? Like, is she a big draw? Is she just one I of many performers? I think in the stage version, she's a huge draw. She's kind of she's why... kind of the 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 name performer at this point. Yeah, and that's why when she gets fired, it's a big deal. And then she goes back because she's a crowd favorite. The club needs her. Right. This whole vibe in this movie, I think she's not right. It's not that she's not that big of a deal. I mean, we don't really see anyone else. You know, we see group numbers. Obviously, we see the MC. She's the only one we see being introduced by name. Yeah. But it is sort of hard to tell, right? Is she, you know, like, to, how crucial is she to the Kit Kat Club? Right. But, you you know, the uh, Sweet Charity episode, I said that that movie is, like, fundamentally about someone trying to convince themselves that they are worthy of love, that they are lovable, mm-hmm. right? Right. And right. Bob Fosse has this huge, huge uh, self-loathing uh, inferiority street. complex. Yes, right. Yes. That that clouds all of his work. And the other thing is, I I think he views show business and the weird drive of show people to be a dark thing. And you really look at all of his movies, and they are people who are like burdened by the perception of their work. You know, not being taken seriously or not being loved enough or being viewed as dangerous or illegitimate or whatever it is. People who cannot make their art connect in a way that they want, uh, who also just fundamentally feel like I'm, I'm probably unlovable. I'm desperate yeah. for love and I'm probably not worthy of it. 
and I'm trying to replace it with my relationship to the audience. And, and vices and everything in between. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's like... Uh, and the that, characters do that. All of his characters are right. vehicles for that. Right. That difference in how Sally Bowles is positioned within this movie, I think, speaks to Bob Fosse's complex. Yeah. yeah. His yeah. basic worldview. That, that It's just echoed in all five movies. Yes. Which is fascinating, because, right, it's like... He is such an auteur, and we're talking about yeah. him on this podcast, and obviously he's, you know, like this creatively focused guy. But right, he's coming onto a show that's not his, uh, right. and he's telling, you know, a story that's not his or whatever, obviously. But but you can feel him, in, and, and it's a female yeah. protagonist, and it's said, but you right, you can feel... Just, just him behind everything as as you can with Sweet Charity and and everything else. Well, it's it's that director thing. Like obviously, all that jazz is all about him. But and then the two movies on either side of that are him doing nonfiction, you know, true life ripped from headline stories, and yet he focuses in on the exact same elements of those very different characters and different time periods and different uh, scenes, you know. Yeah, uh, it's he's just a guy whose themes are really fucking big. Yeah, then because like his follow up to this is Lenny, where it's like you know I need to make a movie about another like self loathing, intense performer who was always right. yeah you know yeah. anyway, which he also uh, like notoriously hated that cutting it together and everything like that. He just had such like a breakdown cutting yeah, that right. film together. That was the other yeah. thing of how dedicated he was in the editing process. Dedicated in all of the films, editing those movies and absolutely hating them, which I, I always wonder how directors edit their own films. It seems and like, horrible. And are, it seems terrible. Like, I've been in the editing room with Steven Spielberg editing his new movie and I remember... <sighs> Just humble being like, well, I'm sorry, I, your buddy Steve brag. invited you. Your buddy <laughs> no, Steve it invited yes. you to watch it, fucking Fableman's footage. It wasn't. I did not. See, I haven't seen any of it. I need to clarify. Okay. I've not seen okay. any Damn of it. it. I dropped in to give mm -hmm. him a birthday present back in December. Aww. And Sweet. wait, what was the birthday present? Yeah, you gotta tell us the present. Oh, I can tell you the present. Um, what do you get? The man I, who has everything. I know. Well, that's exactly the the dilemma I end up having when Jurassic I have to get Park him on Blu-ray. Does he have? Yeah, that? I'm like, yeah. actually, here's the here's here's all of the cuts. This is a list of cut scenes I want. You can give me them for your birthday. <laughs> you can, right, um, right, right, right. But no, I I got him a uh, I took a, a really beautiful picture of him and Steve Sondheim in the recording studio for when we were doing uh, G Officer Krupke, and mm. I got it framed. Him and Steve were really good friends, and when he passed away, obviously we were all gutted. And uh, that was his birthday present. But I That's went I dropped wild. in That's at nice. his his Amblin offices to go give it to him, and I remember walking mm -hmm. into the editing room, and he was in there with with Michael and the whole team that edits with him and has been for years and years and years and i just remember like the vibe was very chill but i felt very uneasy and i was mm, like right. how do you people lock yourself in these four walls for maybe 12 hours a day watching the same 35 seconds over and over again like no wonder bob fossey hated his films by the time he was done it was usually him and one other person in a dark room just cutting the same thing together. Like nowadays, I guess it's a little bit different with in the digital age. But Steven right. still shoots on film, so yeah. there's so much that goes into. I I can't imagine. So when it comes to Bob Fosse and his self-loathing complex, which is an understandable complex, even though he you took it to it. the next level, right? I I probably would also be in the same the same boat because well, he was. I just right. 
I don't get how you don't just hate what you've done if you watch it a hundred times. It's like saying the yes. same word over and over again. It starts to sound like well, not a word. Or right. I can't. Yeah. Even, I can't watch my own performances. Let like I I I saw West Side Story ten times and it was sadistic. Like it, it got to a point where I was like, I can't do this ever again. Like rest assured, Shazam Two will be viewed once One and time. never again. <laughs> it, it is. Uh, it's the thing that I find most astounding in directors who also star in their own films. Where I'm how? like, I don't know yeah, how right. they the, do the, it. The two brains doing both at the same time, being aware of both things during takes thing is one. You know, I can almost get my head around how a very high functioning person can handle that. But the idea of then you have to go into an editing room and watch all and your fucking. And then watch your stuff. Well, right. well, that's that's the thing, because like, you know, there's one thing being, you know, you're Bradley Cooper, you're directing A Star is Born and you're right. half the movie there. That's yeah. crazy. Insane. And then but then also like, you know, I, I asked I remember asking um you know choreographers and stuff like, can you watch your own work? Like we all have that right. complex. I can't yeah. watch Do they get playback. in their heads. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I can't watch playback when I'm on set, let alone having to watch the whole thing back. And being a director, I assume you're watching it back being like, this is the baby that I conceived and right. I'm watching it for the 1500th time. Like, no wonder yeah. Steven Spielberg doesn't sit in at the premieres. I think he sat in at Does our New not? York premiere. He sat in at New York and because uh -huh. he wanted to see it with everybody. Our whole the cast audience. was there. Right. And right, then right, LA, right. he went and took a nap and then came down to the party. King shit. King shit. Yeah. Went to nap. Time. That is, that is, yeah. going, yeah. taking a nap at any point is a king move. Yeah. I yeah. would do the same exact yeah. thing if I were a director because there's one thing being in over an hour of a two and a half hour film and yeah. then just like that's it. But then like you right. lay claim to the whole two and a half hours. It's every inch of it is your thing, right? I am yeah. now realizing that I can't watch Snow White ever. Goodbye, sure. Oh, uh, you can. Oh, because you're all over no. Snow White. It's it's the whole. I'm the whole yeah. movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it is. Uh, I mean, there, you know, th there's the thing they say of like you write the movie three times, right? You write the yeah. script, then you write it when you're filming, and the final time you write it is in the editing room. And I feel like every director that I consider great, I have read a quote from at some point in time where they say like, inevitably. At some point in the journey, you hit a point where you have made the worst movie anyone has ever seen. Yeah, where you're sure, in the editing right. room, the thing you're watching is truly the worst like, thing. If, if anyone sees this, I'm ruined. Right. Yes. Yes. Unsalvageable. Like, just <laughs> right. impossible. And I do think there's that thing of, like, editing. Especially, look, if you're a good director, it means you're discerning, right? So the people who I think have an easy time editing are people probably who lack uh, taste or skill. But if you are a discerning director, you're watching footage and just, I, I imagine, hyper fixated on the things you didn't get, the things that are wrong, That's the, the things thing. you can't fix, e right? Even if you're making a great film, you probably, there was probably some moment in the editing room where you had to be like, well, this is the best right. we can do with this and we're going to mm -hmm. have to move on. Like, there, you know, yeah. we've looked at everything and this is the best. I don't love it. Right. Like even and yes. like, obviously, that's what so many directors say. Like if they watch a movie of their own, they're like, ah, this is this is like 30 seconds too long. Or ah, I remember this day where like we just, you know, couldn't get a take because of and, and whatever the weather. The, whatever, his something. editing style is so unconventional. He has such bizarre sort of like structures to his movies with these sort of like yeah. different Russian nesting doll timelines and, and things like that. Where his editing is also like choreography. So it's not just that he's trying to like rewrite a movie in post, but he's trying to find this like very specific rhythm and like the relationship between the images and shit. It must drive him insane. And that's that's where you get the 
the the joys of having someone who knows the world of choreography in the directing world. And that's mm. where you you win. That is where you have it. An absolute win as a movie viewer, as a movie maker, people who were on that set, if they were working with a director who had no idea, it's the same way that Jerry Robbins was so successful with the original West Side Story, mm. even though he got fired, it was, you know, it was mm -hmm. the fact that the camera was choreographed. Yeah. It's why we were so blessed. We had Justin Peck guiding our, you know, our dolly cam and guiding our steady cams through the, the weaving them through dance numbers. It's important. And, and that's why Fosse movies in retrospect, maybe in the day, didn't necessarily look like they were working. But that's why we look back on them and we're like, this is genius. It's because the man knew his own work. And... And that's why it's like yeah. it's it's cr like the the reason I think so many times we talk about um, movie musicals that don't do well or don't necessarily fit the mold in the right way. Mm -hmm. It's because you have a director that has no musical vision, no rhythm, no sense of dance, which is so like it's the most integral part of a musical when you're making a musical movie. And it's so depressing when, yeah, like the musical movies don't, the, some of them don't seem to have the faith yeah. in the audience or when whatever. It just, to just doesn't yeah, move. Yeah. It doesn't move you at can't, all. They don't it's just chopped let up. you yeah. see it and feel it. Yeah. I mean, it's what is unique about him is he is so much less reliant on camera movement because you're right in, in the history of movie musicals, that tends to be the most successful way to handle it is you have to treat the camera as its own piece of choreography. You need to sync up the movement yeah. in that sort of sense. And Fosse it, at this point in particular, is so much more locked down and he's achieving that sense of choreography only through the cutting, uh, which I, I think people continue to learn the wrong lessons from. It's what you're saying. They go, oh, well, Fosse is able to create this rhythm with a cutting. I can just shoot a bunch of fucking coverage and stitch it together and that will work. And it's like, yeah. no, but he understands the movement of going from one image to the next. Yeah. And then it, then it becomes evident why he, you know, the, the original idea was to just cut all, like, cut all but 10 seconds of a musical number right. in it. You can see those moments where you can, you can tell there was a sense of hesitation. But I, I do struggle with the with the loss of certain songs in in there are great film. songs you know, from the show that are not i think Fra right. i think fraulein schneider gets some of the best songs yeah. in that musical and it totally sucks that they don't they don't ever delve into the plot there's no Herr schultz character right Instead, that is like a a co-lead basically in the musical is that the role? musical yeah. like, is, yeah. is absolutely yeah. built upon this old woman and right. her her house and like the whole you know who cares so what what would you do is one of the greatest musical theater songs not because it's the most interesting or flashy there's no dance or costumes that are crazy but it bring it grounds that plot in a way that i i don't think any other musical has ever had something like that that just brings it all into this full perspective for the audience to be like Holy shit, of course. It's you're obviously rooting for this relationship between Fraulein Schneider and Herr Schultz, but when she sits there and says, you know, they they break they throw fruit through my windows, I will still be here when the war is over. And right. because I've been here all along and I'm going to be here again, and you just kind of see the the reality and the 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 shininess of the Kit Kat Club is shattered by 
that one song and you're like shit dude this is this is real life this is what's happening and that's what the whole song cabaret is about the whole breakdown that sally has which i think also the movie is missing that that song is a mental breakdown realizing that she can no longer silence what's going on outside the walls because it's gonna come in at one point like that's something that i always struggle with with this movie is just not i i miss that and i think the reason that never made it in there is because Bob Fosse was really hesitant about making another musical. I, and I think I think the number in in the film version ends up being played more as a form of denial. Than it's what it's her being I, I, like, I'm right. just going to live on stage. Like, I, yeah. I can't think about it. Yeah. It's, it's, right, it's not right. a protest song, which is what you're saying. Yeah, right. it's 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 more of like her her throwing herself into this side of herself and like being like, it's, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Life is a cabaret. It's all going to be fine. And obviously if the movie ended on that, that would be a weird note. But then the movie ends on the weird reprise of we'll come in. That is so discordant and scary and right. a mirror and all the that stuff. Mirror. Yeah. But, um, can I just make a joke? I wanted to make 15 minutes please, ago. Please, <laughs> please, please. Do you think when Bradley Cooper was editing a star is born, he just would say, I just want to take another look at that. <laughs> I just want to take another look at that. Hey, I just want can, to take can, another look can, at that. Can you load that up? I just want to take another look at that. Hey, roll it back. Sam's take. Oh, wow. Roll it back. I just want to take another look at that. Remember A Star is Born? God, we need yeah. it back. They need to just bring it back. Just put it back in movie theaters right now. Let's do another one. A Star is (laughs) Reborn. Or just do another one. That's fine. Yeah, just just do it again. A Star is Reborn. Do a fucking bionic Jackson Maine comes back. Yes. Yes. Jackson Maine is a head in a jar or something. I just wanted to take another look at you. (laughs) Um, Sorry. I just had to do that joke. It's been Uh, around in my head. This is, I think, I mean, we're talking about the things, you know, it's very much Bob Fosse's cabaret. And you're right, Rachel. There's a lot of decisions he makes that takes away from inherent power from the show. Yeah. But they're all to serve his weird, uh, not weird, but his his fascinations, his pet peeves. It's weird. It's idiosyncratic. It's And like adapting a Broadway show to movies is hard. And Broadway shows are, are long and they are structured, you know, well, that's how you end up with Wicked Part and... 1 and Wicked Part 2. Like, well, that's why we're getting, indeed. you know? That's yeah. how you talk yourself into that decision, I think. Right. You're like, well, this is so big and unwieldy, and there's this clear act break. What if we do it as two movies? And it's like, you know, I get it. But I also am like, are people going to want to wait two years to see Wicked Part 2 or whatever, rather than and also, 20 minutes? Yeah. Look, how are they going to feel walking out of Part 1? How are they going to feel with how Part 2 starts? Like, I, I just think... The flow of those movies is going to be very strange. Um, but I, I think prove me I, wrong though. I mean, I, 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 yeah. I've always said like maybe it'll be good. I have no idea. It really is like if we ended Cabaret at Tomorrow Belongs to Me. Yes, right. and then was like, gee, I wonder what's going to happen. Cabaret Part sure. Two. That's the thing with Wicked. It's like, hmm, is she going to be a Wicked Witch at the end of she, this? Yeah. It's like we know what's going to happen. We know fucking She's happen. defying gravity. <laughs> and I hope she just keeps flying up, up, and away. She's gonna, yeah. <laughs> right? Especially since Wicked is a prequel to yeah. another it is a prequel story. To a, a well known story. Working yes. towards a, a fixed point in time. Uh, no, but I think the thing that he is able to do with the movie more successfully than I think you can do it on stage is because you're cutting back and forth between these two realities, the the tension between the the show, the musical elements of the movie, the sort of fantasia of the Kit Kat Club, and just the slow creep of 
the the rise of the Nazi party, you know, whenever you're out on the streets and you're seeing just the number of armbands increase or the sort of like uh, thrown off jokes, that stuff I think hits differently if you're actually seeing that in the outside world rather than in a construction of a stage, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's the fucking line that's like the most frightening in the movie for me. I pulled it up so I don't, uh, I didn't uh, fucking mangle it. The Nazis are just a gang of stupid hooligans, but they do serve a purpose. Let them get rid of the communists. Later we'll be able to control them. Right. Yeah. Well, for me, the most haunting line is when he's like, do you still think you can control them? Yeah. It's yeah. just so like, oh, god i know it's gonna happen and so it's it it it, and that's that's part of the brilliance of it though is 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 the knowing that the audience knows exactly what's gonna happen and the irony of the whole plot because of that fact but it is so perfectly woven whenever he hits a beat of it i mean them throwing the nazi out of the club at the beginning and the audience cheering and being like we all fucking agree on this right we can make fun of them right yeah and 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 that's like the first half of the movie um when you know the song's but also just the kind of romantic, uh, bohemian, like, oh, we all live in this crazy boarding house mm-hmm. and, you know, try a prairie oyster and, you know, who do you like to sleep with? And, like, I live yeah. in this weird room and you'll live in this weird room, you know, and it's like very, it is very winning and it is very romantic. And you do, like, have this kind of automatic love for, like, oh, this idea of, like, you know, Berlin in the 30s you know everyone's just kind of an artist and everyone's creative and everyone's bouncing off of each other but and it's all doomed even their it's all little doomed. dynamic is doomed. and then the tomorrow belongs to me number which is like the only number number <laughs> it's a great number yeah. uh, is the only song that's like both outside but also in the daytime like it's so yeah. jarring where you're like oh god right like in the daytime it's a whole different society like and there are people that aren't bohemian artists in this country right, right. right. you know like it's in and when you just i mean that 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 whole sequence is so incredibly well done the 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 cuts to like the old guy who's kind of just like the one yeah you know who's just like ugh, you know and then but then mm. the weird swell of passion that all these people are more and more emboldened as it's going on and standing uh it's so good it's uh, so, good. It's so yeah. freaky um It is so freaky. It really feels like from another planet or something. The aesthetic, the band, the way they're all dressed. It like for me, I'm truly like, what is this stuff? Like this is so an amalgamation of like a bunch of. But it's also this is just it's it's how it always fucking happens. Like history repeats itself, and people are seen as so absurd as to not be threatening until the moment where there is that sort of just, like, single-minded focus and calm and confidence, you know, inevitability to how they behave, where you're just like, oh, it's fucking too late. We've let this metastasize into something we can't roll back, you know? Obviously, that song is so effective that people thought it was a real, like, you know, Nazi anthem and not a song written by two badass Jews. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just because it's so it's so perfectly like matches the sort of creepy pastoral folky, you know, anthem uh, idea that of of the sort of 30s Nazi anthems. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, but that's yeah. What else happens in cabaret? Uh, um, <laughs> uh, um, you know, you got so yeah funny. the prairie oysters and you got. Uh, Sally making, I would say, a fairly, fairly bold 
uh, pass at Brian. I, I like her move, which is basically like, you know, I got an okay body. Like, touch my stomach, for example. Yeah. Pretty good. Boob. <laughs> Thoughts? Got him like, you know, like, Thought, thoughts? Question mark? <laughs> yeah. uh, your hands on it. So my favorite part of that, my favorite part of that whole sequence is when she gets out of the shower, but she's still in full hair and makeup. Yes. Full hair and makeup. <laughs> yes. It's like yeah. eyeliner seem, yes. didn't even smudge. The lashes are there. It's it's perfect. Maybe, maybe she wears just a shower cap over her entire head. She yes. Just, she just. Yeah. Yes. She just, yeah. It's <laughs> in a. She's in a hazmat. It's just a head of a hazmat suit. And she's just like, yeah, this is fine. I want to believe that her shower cap is the exact it's same the lines yes. as her hair. It's the widow's peak. <laughs> it's just a rubber version of that. She tightly oh my God. pulls over. Well, that, yeah. that would make sense. That's like, yeah, that's like a dancer in like whatever, 42nd Street. Like some kind of old, right? They, they always have like right. the shower caps. Yeah, yes. the, the bathing caps. Yes. Um, uh, it's oddly, anyway. her hair is oddly the evil queen from Snow White's like, you know how she wears that like cowl oh, yeah. on her head? Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. I was watching oh, that yesterday. Yes. I thought it was yes. very interesting that that was. And also considering the characters in Snow White, because Snow White was 37, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I should know that. And it was, uh, uh, you know, she was, Snow White was based off Hedy Lamar. So I feel like that, just that era of everything was the inspiration. Well, yeah. And like fucking, I'm just looking through now, but like Maleficent had that too. I feel like a lot yeah. of the Disney villains have that weird widow's because peak it's, it's, head cap. It's, yeah, it seems aggressive. It's a point. It's like a right. weapon. I don't a know. A constant yeah. furrowed brow. But it yeah. also gives right, this right. like heart shaped face that's very, right. uh, it's very deceiving for the, you know, the kids to watch. Yes. I mean, even though the Wicked Queen is called the Wicked Queen. So maybe you it's, can figure it out. This like, there were a couple true. hands. There were this a couple hands. Yeah. I'm your I'm your stepmother. My name's Wicked Queen. Hi. I'm, it's gonna be great. Come live with me. We're friends. <laughs> yeah. I'm we really chill. First and foremost, <laughs> I want you to think of me as a friend. Uh and of course everyone knows I'm the world's biggest hottie, so that's well known. I'm the fairest. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. number one fairest of them all, no right. contest. <laughs> <laughs> I check in on that once in a while. No big yeah. deal. Uh, anyway, um, cabaret. So yeah, so the they get they start Sally and Brian. They start hanging out. They start mm-hmm. you know they you know sleeping together. She, she he he tried it with three other girls and it hadn't worked. But they were all the wrong three girls. The wrong or whatever, three right? girls. Yeah, right. Classic. And then they start hanging out with this Baron dude, Maximilian von Huhn, played by Helmut Green, who's a uh, Nazi. Who I feel like uh who who's uh you know but he's got a nice uh, country estate and a mustache uh, and a mustache <laughs> and there's this sort of i remember when i saw this movie as a young like i i don't think i i must have been like 12 or whatever i don't think i picked up on it until because the, their whole kind of three-way affair is happening off screen until that, it sort of spills out on screen sequence after the fact. Right. Where all three of them start slow dancing together. That's yeah. so fucking well done. And then, yeah, and it then is, it's yeah. not really made explicit to the the YouTube bastards. Which has one of my, like, is my pet peeve with, <laughs> my pet peeve with this movie, that Zoom right after he says, <laughs> so am I. <laughs> it's just, it's Fossey like the only zoom. zoom in the freaking film. And it's the, it, it would be so much more powerful if it didn't zoom. That's me being nitpicky. No, but, but Fosse loves a zoom. I do think so much of it was him trying to like go against the standard language of musicals. Cause even yeah. Sweet Charity is a lot more conventional and has a lot of zooms rather than Dolly moves, you know? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, uh, you know, just I, Baron is bad news, by the way. Just anyone that kind of kind of classically handsome. I'm, I'm uh, in Germany. I'm scared of. I don't. If, I don't like that. Yeah, if someone has like paintings of their relatives. You know, yeah, that's a red that flag go, for like, you. Way back, Run. sure. That's yeah, a real red flag. <laughs> Welcome to my house. This is Max the second. I'm Max the fourteenth, of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, what else? I mean, maybe this time is obviously that's kind of the early optimistic number that is like, you know, completely incredible. I don't know. If you, uh, that's that's the number added for this movie. It is the thing that sort of uh, I this surprises me every time I watch it is. Uh, how much more restrained her rendition is in this movie than I feel like this has become such a big Liza anthem. It's such an anthem, yes, right. right. But not in it, this. It's very bittersweet. You kind of it's know very it's, bittersweet, it's, yeah. right? It's more. Right. It's more hopeful, I think, than it than it hasn't. Yeah. Because it's usually. I correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't know. It's been a second in the stage production. I believe that's placed after he like agrees yes. to to raise the baby with her, yeah. right? Yes, I think in the stage production they put it uh, much later. Yeah, um, and that's and why here it's she's very kind early. of it's a little bit more uh, tinged with heartbreak you know, and possible you know she's disappointment. Lying to herself. Yeah, right. And so in this, it's right. It happens right after they sleep together for the first time. So mm-hmm. she's she actually is extremely hopeful about the relationship. Yes, um, and uh, that this right this and. Mine air are both added later to the shows, right? Um, but you know, but still, it does have. Uh, you, you you kind of, I mean, I've seen this movie so many times; it's sort of hard to remember how I felt the first time. But you know, yeah, you 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 do have the idea. Like, eh, it's a little doomed, uh, yeah. or, or she's she's fooling herself a little bit. Oh, it's, it's like calling your girlfriend. A, yeah, yeah. One of my favorite melancholy uh, pop songs that's anthemic, right? I'm, yes. You know, no. This when, is yeah. this is a song I listen to when I want to when I want a good little cry or I I want to be in my feels. It's Aww. it's no. It's it's I find it to be a very uh, heartbreaking song. But there's something about you know when Liza's at the palace or whatever and she's like fucking belting it to the rafters that makes it even more it's tragic to me. It gives yeah. the it gives the same. Uh, vibes of the one very famous performance of Judy Garland sitting without any. Uh, amplification yes. singing somewhere over the rainbow that's just yes. like gut wrenching insane yeah i i saw liza at city hall i guess maybe city 10 center? years ago now Jeez. city center surely S- no in th- town times hall? square town hall i'm sorry town that's hall. what i mean right. yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry i combine that city hall is where the mayor is i know <laughs> actually I saw- liza minnelli is the mayor of new york city <sighs> That'd be just fine. <laughs> Bring her Life, in. Lifetime Mayor of Broadway. Um, yeah. It, it was, sorry. It was, yes, at uh, uh, Town, Town Hall. Hall. Sure. Uh, her and Alan Cumming did oh. a, a shared night. And Jeez. it was sort of feeling like that might have been the last major, major sort of run right. she did. But it was like, she can't do a whole night. She's going to do a couple songs. He'll take a swing. Yeah, it was She'll 2013. Do a Liza okay. and Alan. So yes. nine years yeah. ago. Yeah. Uh, and she was incredible. But uh, there was a moment uh, when uh, between songs, uh, her banter to set up song, some guy in the audience yelled out, Liza, I love you. Sure. And she like looked him dead in the eyes. She fucking stared straight into the soul of the man. And she went like, I love you, too. And then she went, really, I mean it. 
I do. I oh love you God. too. Oh shit. And it was like that moment I was like that's the whole fucking Liza Minnelli thing in a nutshell. There it is. Where there there was there Liza, she's very think, like hard on sleeve, nakedly. Well, emotional. Like you're 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 feeling she, for her so powerfully. The yeah. mask is removed with her. Like well, that, yeah, that's, that's why that moment at the Oscars was so touching this year with her and Lady right. Gaga, where she was mm-hmm. obviously struggling, and Lady Gaga said, "I got you," and Liza Minnelli said, "I know," and it yeah. was such a real. I know. I, know. I was. I know. I was having such a moment in the audience, being like, "Oh." God, it's Liza. Like it was just, but that's always been her mo. And I have to say, that was her mom's too. Towards the end, the end of her life, and it was right. It's a really beautiful thing to, and and sort of sad just to see it comes so full circle. But Liza's lived this incredible yes. life, and 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 established herself just as we were saying before. Established herself as an icon of film. Despite not doing much film, like doing much, but it doesn't matter. There's still no one like her. That's the sort of the the rarest peak that you can get to as a performer, where it's just like, yeah, she's Liza Minnelli. She's a type onto herself. If she's in a movie, you understand like this is Liza. You know, and even crazier to think that she has one of the. You know, her mother is one of the even greater icon. Like is you know one of the both of her both of her parents. She like yeah both of her parents true. She couldn't yeah, lose. She true. won the genetic lottery. If there was anyone out there <laughs> who won the genetic lottery, it's it's her. <laughs> it's I, I don't remember yeah. who it is. I don't know how much it was meant to be catty or not. I don't think it it is a criticism, but I think about it whenever I'm watching her. Some critic, I think when this movie came out, said like her face is pointing in like seven different directions. She's mm-hmm. got that fascinating thing where it's just like, her eyes are going this way and her teeth are going this way and her mouth is this way and her nose is this way. Like, no one else in the history of the world has looked like her despite the fact that she looks like both of her parents. Yeah. And she's you know? gorgeous. And that's the thing. She's it's so like, and she's so, she's such a dime piece. And like, and it, it becomes the- <laughs> That's the, that's right, Rachel. Well yeah. said. Rachel, that's, becomes, you're right, you're right to say it. Yeah. <laughs> it becomes her like, it, be, it, it becomes her. That It's so- it's so beautiful and I think she owns it in such a way because she doesn't look like everybody else and it and it makes her character more intriguing no matter what she's doing but also as a movie star in her own right and a stage star just a star in general she Musician, owned that right, look yeah. that she had and it and it made it it made it even better because her mom struggled so long in the early you know studio yeah. days where people called her a hunchback and said she was ugly and made so her fix everything and made her i mean drugs yeah, yeah insane yeah. insane so to see her kind of win in that regard even back then especially now in retrospect is such a cool thing well liza like really was able to especially at the beginning part of her career come out of the gates so strong and really do shit on her own terms in a way right. that her mother didn't have that level of control uh right but, but yeah, I, I mean, I do just think it, it's fascinating because I, I do think it is part of the take of this movie that, like, she's not a great performer. She is never going Sally. to be a movie star yeah. for any right. number of reasons. Liza's a great performer, but right. there's that thing, you know, that makes her uncomfortable to watch, that, that added vulnerability or whatever. Whereas, like, Liza can perform on stage and still have that, like, that removal of the mask yeah. and have it work for her. 
Uh, and something like New York, New York, where she's giving like a far more sort of naturalistic, dramatic performance in the non-musical sections of that movie. There's something about the fact that Sally is like always on, that she's always performing, mm-hmm. you know, that yeah, even when she's leading Brian around or whatever. Right. Yes. Because yes, yes. Michael York, his performance, performance is at such a different pitch than hers. Right. Yeah. And then Joel Gray is at a similar pitch and she moves back and forth between the two worlds, but she stays always in kind of stage show zone. I mean, even the scene where he comes home and finds her after she's had the abortion and she like cannot help but try to sort of make a show out of it. Right. You know, like in how to sort of I don't want to say play her sadness, but like her sort of wistful jokes about everything. Yeah. It's the it's what it's how she understands love. Hmm. Yeah. Is being able to make other people feel something. I get it. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. Um, I get it. I get it, Sally. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I also get the kind of nihilism, uh, you know, that she settles on by the end of the, by the end of the show. I get that too. You know, it's, it's hard to deal with such turbulent times. Um, it's uh, Hartman town, a podcast that you and I, uh, used to listen mm. to religiously, uh, there's an episode sure. uh, I remember where uh, Dan Harmon was talking about uh, the, maybe the Tiki Torch Rally or one of the f- fucking awful things that's A happened thing. in the last five or six years. And he mm. said, like, that's it's the defining thing about, like, who you are as a human being that everyone, of course, wants to be loved. And the ultimate test of that is if you're alone and unloved and the only person waving you over is a Nazi, do you cross the street? Right. You know, which is I it just, you know, I think he put that really beautifully, but it's sort of the whole tension of this movie of like you could discount it and discount it until the point where the choice is, do do you care to pursue a Nazi's love? Do you want the approval of a Nazi? You know, if the only way for you to perform is for an audience of the fucking armbands. What's more important to you? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, we're all a little complicit, but then, right. And then you always have the, the MC who is this, this creature who is like completely devoid of motive and yes, like character, right. You don't know anything about him. You don't know who he is. It feels like is Pennywise from it. You're like, this right, is just like, some yes. enigmatic right, supernatural being. Yeah. yeah. And so he's like pure nihilism, right? Like he, yes. he is, yeah, which is just so entrancing. Like, and it's so cool. There's that one shot where you see him uh, grabbing her breasts at the, not grabbing, but like touching them as mm-hmm. he's about to put her on stage. And it's like, it's a shot that Fosse obviously put in like to suggest something to the audience, but without really, you knowing what's going like. So it's, when he's sort of in the wings yeah and he's just like he's just grabbing her for a second before she's going and you're like i always saw that not as a breast grab but as a heart grab am i the only one who saw that no you might be right like i can't tell if he is sort of being a little sinister in that moment or if he's just prepping her for you know getting out on stage like if he's just sort of like yeah i always kind of saw it as this like this is this is your home and here life is beautiful. And like, so that it's not just to the audience, but it's also like a mask that everyone who works there is also putting on. Um, it's but right. I, and it's that, their alliance. I think that's yeah. absolutely up for interpretation. And I have, I don't think that I'm, it, I don't think there's a right and wrong. No, it no, no, I think it's supposed to be very ambiguous. Like it's, it's very, it's just, it's just like this one peak you have of him, not 
on stage. Like he's directly right. off stage, but like he's about to be on stage. Uh, that's just you. All, but you I, do you do also so see good. him watching. Is he's watching her at one point? No, he's watching them. Yeah, the two of them. Yeah, uh, watching Michael York and 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 Liza Minnelli interact. Right, that is it. I think Am you're I, right. Did I make yes. that yes. up? Yes. Okay. No, you didn't make that up. I think you're right. Yes. But I mean, the, yeah, but yeah. I do think that like both of those moments are very interesting because they are the only moments where you don't see him on stage performing, but mm-hmm. it also still feels like he's putting on a face and he's right. giving this like annoyed look. Um, well, because he doesn't want to lose her right. to the real world. One yeah. assumes, like, but yeah. you can assume a lot of things. Obviously, yeah. you don't really well, it, know, it, but that would be the it, idea. Oddly enough, it's leading player in Pippin it's it's it gives that same which is also a Fosse yep. classic uh but it does give that same kind I, of feeling I mean I love I mean, it's a much more empathetic character but Hermes in Hadestown more recently like it's yeah. always a good character that kind of guy who's like I'm here I'll always be here I'm the you know I'm the MC I'm here to explain things I'm here to entertain you and yeah. then like as it goes on, you're like, who is this guy? Is he yeah. like part of the show or is he part of the plot? Like, I don't That's understand. That's the interesting part with Hermes, especially, is just that that last song where it's like, it's you know, so it's good. a sad song and we're going to sing it again. And yes. and the sad, tragic thing about his character is that he's going to watch it happen all over again. And it doesn't seem like there's anything he can do but be there and know. But he does sort of say in that final song, and I love Hadestown so much, and that's the only reason I'm thinking of it, like, where yeah. he's like, it, it could be different next time. You never yeah. know. You and never that know. is sort of the weird, right? You know, like maybe, even though we all kind of know this is the, the sad poetic song that always ends in tragedy, like you'll watch it again because maybe it'll be different next time. And that is yeah. like the allure of entertainment. It's so cool. That's why and we watch that. Titanic over and over and over well, again, hoping well, the iceberg doesn't. Absolutely. But yeah. you know what else, Rachel? Titanic has a happy ending which which oh, weirdly we lead it's you, you know like like the weird the weird dreamy ending of them back on the boat and only the nice people are there it's the miracle of that movie that it was uplifted. able to yes right yes yes uh, it's so crazy can i just shout out uh, my favorite uh version of the musical trope the two of you are talking about please what? i i think an underrated one Officer Lockstock in Urinetown, I think, is no, a really that's fucking yeah. fascinating character. It's very true. And the way he does and does not intersect with the plot when he's sort of impartially commenting and when he's actually affecting things. Yeah. And, and whether a, he's benevolent fair. or not. Yeah. That is. Did you say Urinetown? Oh, you would love Urinetown, Ben. It's true. I, I mean, I'm interested. Run freedom, uh, Ben. <laughs> it's uh Ben, it's a musical from I want to say like 2001, 2002, yeah. right? Early yeah. 2000s. That's set uh well, it's set in a world basically where uh you have to pay money to pee. All the all the urines, urinals are controlled by a corporation. It's a privilege to pee. It's a privilege, it's a privilege to, to pee. Town. Yeah. Uh, and it's one of those shows that was so And if so, they kept like, you peeing somewhere else, they send you to Urine Town. Urine Town's yes. the mythical place where people get yeah. sent to and never seen again. I wouldn't want to go there. You piss in a jar, they send you to Urine <laughs> way Town. Way down, Urine Town, way down under the ground. <laughs> why Why has Urine Town never come back? I was going to say. I don't been know. Re- been filmed. It's, I've never it's, understood it's it. It's been doomed to college productions. That's really it. <laughs> and I, I also feel like a lot of times when I see productions of you're in town they they don't quite get the humor they're they're right. it's such yeah. a fine line you should play hope harcourt though i'm oh, realizing now hope harcourt 
in your in your town? Yes. Oh, I'm that's also confusing. that's anything goes. Hope is anything goes. Yeah. But that character's yeah. name is also Hope. I'm getting the last name yes. wrong. Sorry. Yeah. It's Hope Cladwell. Cladwell. In, in Cladwell. The, yeah. But you should Mr. also Cladwell. play Hope Hardcore. Yeah, you should do both. My goes. sister. Fun fact: My sister played Hope Hardcore her sophomore year of high school in Anything Damn. Goes. And Damn. yes, it was racist. It, that show is so racist. <laughs> that show. That show. That show. Yeah. It would be. Would, would be tough to film. I think. Yes. There's yes. A few it's. That might it's. Not work. I can't believe it's playing out here in London. I'm like, I cannot believe that this show is still allowed to exist. Lo- London I, loves yeah. to do anything goes. I saw anything goes twice in London. I think like oh they're always reviving it. Yeah. They keep I, doing I, it. I love anything goes. Yeah. I I did it twice when I was young. I do feel like both productions I was in, they tried to solve the problem where they were like, yeah. can they be like monks, like like Jesuit yes. monks? Like, yeah. what is the... Well, right. they, I saw a production with uh, Corbin Blue out in D.C. Uh, in like mm. a round theater a couple years ago. And, and they tried to fix it by making certain characters Asian. And therefore other, being like, uh, okay. be like different other uh-huh. characters Asian and being like, okay. well, see, it can't be There's- racist. And it was like, types. no, uh-huh. it's still yeah, a little yeah, bit yeah, racist. Yeah, yeah. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> it, was, it was very interesting to see in that, like, I think I saw it, like, in 20, 2018. I mean, that 2018 lens was very interesting. And well, it's so, just so deeply uh, yeah. woven in with the plum blossom shit and whatever. Yikes. Like, you have to make such wholesale changes to get around it. That's the thing. You have yeah. to completely shift it. Yeah. Anyway, oh. you should play both hopes. Okay. Yeah. Why not? But Do but it. but woke anything goes. Uh, yeah. Sure. Someone will solve mm. the problem. Some someone yeah. someone will. I mean the same yeah. the same way that they're planning to solve thoroughly modern Millie. I'm sure they'll solve. Um, That's another and, tough uh, They'll one. solve anything goes. Yeah. Are they doing a thoroughly modern Millie movie? Are they? Are they? No. They were going to revive it a couple. Yeah. They were going to yeah, do a city center it. revival with Ashley Park. Um, I and I remember that. they were they were developing it while we were working on West Side Story. And I remember talking to Janine Tesori about it. And and she was like, you know, talking about how Ashley was such a great pick, which she is. She's brilliant. Um, and how there was going to be some, you know, alterations made because, you know, you have an you have an Asian lead of a show yes. that is notoriously not kind it, to Asian stereotypes insane stereotypical stuff in that show that's like weird for the yeah anyway for modern yeah. day audiences yeah um that that would be fascinating though to see someone try and thread that needle but david what when you read reviews of the movie cabaret from when it came cabaret out, oh yes yeah. So many of like the classic golden age Hollywood directors and especially movie musical directors were like so rhapsodic about this fucking thing where they were mm-hmm. like, someone has made a musical that is actually dark, that is yes. genuinely yes. engaging with grime and darkness and not sort of just weirdly working in elements in a cartoonish way that it like what we're talking about, these musicals that would often have like weird underbellies that were not treated with appropriate amounts of weight. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's funny because, of course, like West Side Story existed. There were lots of like movie musicals that had dark endings, but they, the you know, the original West Side Story does feel, you know, it's 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 so poppy and it's so yes. colorful and it's so magic and it's so surreal. Weirdly, like it way, like it's not set in our gritty world, I guess right. is the difference. Yeah. I don't right. know. And that was the number one thing we wanted to change when we, right. When we brought it and again and that, and that was, you know, Tony Kushner was really the, the main uh, proponent in doing that. He, right. 
he he was amazing at creating a gritty uh, the, the reality of genuinely the, dangerous yeah yeah but what's what's so good about the movie that you're in uh, Rachel Ziegler which is called West Side Story that we're referencing right now directed by uh, your buddy is, Steve yeah. is that it is still a fucking musical like you know like I think yeah. The, yeah. the worry obviously is you're always going to do the let's make it gritty let's make it real and you're just going to forget that this is still a show where people are going to break out into dance and song and it's still going to have that heightened yeah. feel and like yeah yeah and cabaret is definitely more low-key obviously but it is still it, it is still a musical it still does obviously it's an iconic piece of musical yes film. but like, the know, performances yeah. do happen in a performance space yes. similar yeah. to rob marshall's chicago which i think he probably took his inspiration from there for sure absolutely right and that was uh, the the first musical to really explode in a long long time live action it made sense that that made sense i remember thinking for a really long time that it was one of the only movie movie musicals to get it right because it takes place in a dance hall that's what all that jazz is all about it's just kind of like you know this is a this is a music hall where everybody sings about everything and life is fine and and we can escape the harsh realities yeah. of the world. But there and is that thing. Yeah. I mean, Cabaret kind of breaks the movie musical in exactly. that everyone else struggles right. after this to get away with the unabashed, we just break into song and do whatever the fuck we want kind of movie. They're always, people are, are always a little bit cautious, it feels like. Um, yeah. Th- this Joseph Mankiewicz quote, Fosse brought the stink of truth to Cabaret. Mm. Is really like fucking good. He's one of the few directors I'd write for. Stanley Donan wrote Fosse, a letter, said that Stanley Kubrick said that he thinks Cabaret is one of the best pictures he's ever seen in his life. Pretty cool. And then I think he later said that All That Jazz was perhaps the singular best movie he had ever seen. Uh, Vincent Minnelli went to the preview with Liza and said to Fosse, I have just seen the perfect movie. Mm, Like, I just think all these people were sort of astounded by, like, this thing is actually gritty. Right. Mm. Um, But, but like... It, you you feel in that in these reviews that you read because not just those reactions but from the critics as well where yeah. like Pauline Kale is like this is made without compromises and it's hard and unsentimental you feel the critical community reacting to a decade of musicals that we might consider a lot of them are classics but are so you know gaudy and you know uh, theatrical and colorful and poppy and like you know whatever they just they, they get, critics are longing for something different like you're in a far more cynical decade now right. and and there yeah, was yeah. i think right so much of the praise for this movie came from being like they found a musical that matches our times yes oh yeah sure and it is good i do like cabaret i think it's pretty uh, good i think it's a pretty great movie yeah it's a wonderful movie it's a great musical and it just comes from great source material um which is you know the the greatest foundation you can have for a good musical is like crazy ass source material uh Fosse's petty quote with just a little more money i could have made a great film if i've been Jesus able to get Christ. the period right i would have won best picture oh my right. god but you know i do get what he means not i don't agree with him at all but i, yeah. I imagine he's watching it being like man i only had three million dollars and like yeah i can <sighs> see everywhere where like our budget is straining you know right. and we can't like get out into the city or we can't do this or that or right you know like whereas i'm like I love that. I love that this movie felt feels like it's taking place in this weird little bubble. It's so and you barely understand yeah. what's going on outside, right? Like I think that's so cool. But he's looking at The Godfather, and he's like, "Man, they let him shoot sets." Yeah, sure. I mean, Godfather's a good looking movie. Blocked off entire city streets. Yeah. 
I mean, I don't know what, you know, yeah, what, what can you say? It's two good movies came out the same year. But, you know, yeah. Fosse wins an Oscar. It's pretty good. He should be happy. Yeah, and he he's gets, never happy. He gets the triple crown. He wins the uh, yes. the Tony, Rachel, the Emmy, the Oscar. He won the a same Tony, year. an Emmy, and an Oscar in the same year. He's the only person yes. to ever do that because he right he wins the Tony for Pippin and the Emmy for Liza with a Z. Liza really having a hell of a year. Unbelievable. Liza, yeah, let's let's talk about Liza having a good having a really Jesus. good year. Um, but and we will be doing Liza with a Z on our Patreon, right, Griff? Uh, cool. Yes, forgetting. Yeah. Yes. Um, which it will be cool. It's going to be super cool, actually. I'm, it's it's, com- so it's tomorrow, so in fact. Yeah. It's posting tomorrow, so enjoy hey. that. Hey, now. That worked out well. Uh, David, do you have the box office game for this movie? I do! Um, Rachel, we're going to play the box office game. We're going to look at the top five uh, films at the box office the week this came out. Oh. Uh, and Griffin is going to try and guess them. Now, usually he's good at this, but in 1972, he might not be so good. Right. Uh, with with things in my lifetime, I have a weird recall. <laughs> I, I, can, I can go into the memory palace and pull them out. This one, I might be grasping at straws. Um, and so this movie came out, yeah, February 1972. Just want to say that as well. Like, February this movie 19th? came out. No, uh, the 20th, sorry. Uh, is it February 19th? Let me see. It's February 13th, 1972. Oh, okay. That's the week of my dad's 10th birthday. Hey. Oh. Happy 10th birthday, Craig. Yes. Happy 10th, Craig. Shout out Rachel's dad. Craig Zegler. Um, Craig Zegler. Um, What up, Craig? uh, And that's it's just, you know, this came out in February. It wins the Oscar like a full year and change later. Like, you know, and Godfather came out in March. Like those are both movies that just kind of like took over the year. Yeah, just ran um, the table. Yeah. But number one is a movie uh, from 1971, one of the biggest mm-hmm. hits in 1971. It's a uh, action thriller with a big star that launches a franchise. Huh. Is it Dirty Harry? That's right. Dirty Harry. Good there we go. Number two, Griffin, uh-huh. is the best picture winner of 1971. Uh, French Connection? The French Connection. You're doing good. You're doing great. Thank you. Another um, kind of launches a franchise, huge star action thriller. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, number three is less well known. This is a crime comedy. It's based hmm. on a sort of well-known novel uh, hmm. about funny gangsters. Uh, it stars a Broadway legend, one of the greatest of all time. Huh. Do you think you know mm-hmm. what this is, Rachel? Or are your eyes widening at the possibility? I just like the word you Broadway, like Broadway legend. Yeah. I really like Broadway legend. Yeah. Funny gangsters based on a true And a Disney story. legend, I'll say. And a Disney legend. And a Disney Vo- legend. Voiced an iconic Disney character. So is it a Jerry Orbach movie? What are That's we talking right. about? That's right. Jerry Orbach. <sighs> yeah, the he is king. Both. Yeah. Yeah, what yep. is this? But he put baby in the corner. Yeah, well, he and he I, dared I, you to know, put Baby in the corner, and he also was Lenny Briscoe for a million years. He put Joel Gray's daughter in the I know. corner. That's and, true. And I'm, I'm not, look, I'm not trying to virtue signal here, but I tend to fall down on the side of the, that no one should do that. <laughs> <laughs> you should say, I'm hot sorry. Take, hot take, guys. Hot take. I don't think anyone should put I don't think Baby anyone in the should corner. Baby, baby in the That's what Swayze says. He, he comes up to him. He says, look, yeah. hot take, yeah. but uh, you can't I mean, do that. No and good, also, very bad, everyone should it. go buy Jennifer Gray's book, Out of the Corner. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Shameless plug for my girl. For Jennifer go Gray's ahead. book. Can Jennifer I say, Gray, the greatest. Yeah. It's fucking sidebar. Yes. I okay. embarrassingly 
only watched Dirty Dancing for the first time like this month. No. What? Really? No. That's funny. Weird blind spot for me. And one of those Great movies movie. that I was just like, I feel like I've seen it through cultural osmosis. I've seen scenes. I know the songs. I've seen it. Yeah. Parody. I was just like, I feel like I've seen this. So I just never got around to watching it. What were you going to say, Rachel? I would kill to watch that for the first time again. Uh, I'll tell you my experience. Yeah. Uh, fucking rules. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. So good. Uh, could not believe how good it was. Yes. Like, I, I equated to some of the sounds of the Lambs where I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, I get it. I get it. I know I should see it. Everyone's going to tell me it's fucking great. And then you watch it and it feels like so fresh, so yeah. striking. But also, it's one of the, it's the Simpsons. It's, I can see why this yeah. was so popular. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Oh, shit. Right. Yeah. But, but here's another thing that I think isn't discussed about enough with that movie. Uh huh. The dancing is so fucking dirty. It's I swear so to God. Dirty. They, I thought, oh, they? that's some. Some buzzy title. And what are they going to do? They understood the assignment. You might I got fucking hot under the collar every five minutes watching that movie. They are dancing. The dirtiest dancing I've ever seen. Jennifer Grey in the, you know, in Ferris Bueller is like one of my earliest crushes. As a, I was just like, who is this? Love I'm that. obsessed. Yeah. Uh, and she's she's so gorgeous and dirty dancing. And yeah, it's hot. And she Swayze, says one of the she too. says one of the greatest lines. It gives one of the greatest line readings ever in Dirty Dancing, which is I carried a watermelon. <laughs> <laughs> Man, so, now I want to so rewatch Dirty good. Dancing. I feel like my so wife would be good. like, would be fine if I just threw out Dirty Dancing tonight, yeah. right? Like, yeah. yeah, I'm gonna watch Dirty Dancing. I'm, I'm very compelled by this this sequel announced. What this is? My Wait, girl. what's the I, sequel? She's, yeah, she's gonna be in it. They're doing a sequel with. They're her. doing a legacy sequel. Yeah, right. Will they incorporate Havana Nights? Will Rama right? We're we are. I think we're ignoring the fact that that ever happened. I think that's if why. If they fucking tie Havana Nights back in, it would I'm be gonna so funny if they, they, they the do theater. a post credit scene of Diego Luna yeah. and Rama Gary. Because Swayze is in Havana Nights. I just yes, but I just like Wait, the idea. Griffin, are you telling with... me you've seen Havana Nights, but you hadn't seen Dirty Dancing? Okay. Yep, you have outed me. Embarrassing. I saw Havana <laughs> Nights in theaters, and then it still took me an additional twenty years to watch the first movie. Why would you? Why? I don't know. I'm a broken person. That was that's so odd. <laughs> I saw it in theaters. It's so funny that like after they like the idea of like let's do a dirty dancing sequel, the only thing that will remain is the dirty dancing. Like it won't be connected right. in any other way. Well, some may but say it took the them dirty so long dancing, to do it. The dirty dancing is the friends we made along the way. And it's so it has the to be in the role. sequel. It has to. It's but that's the titular also, role. That's a weird it example of role. That movie's written by like uh like a radio host, right? It yeah. was like written as like just a sort of It was a, it was like a memoir of growing events. up in yes. Cuba in the right. 50s. Yes. It it was about like being there during the Cuban Revolution. It's like that movie becoming uh, breaking away where it was like this script that bounced around for like 15 years then someone was like we could put some dirty dancing in this. <laughs> right. This thing is missing <laughs> something. What is right. it? Right. And I think he's uh, credited as the sole screenwriter and he's like there's not a word of my movie in there. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Uh, it's Peter Seagal uh, is the is the NPR host. Anyway, Dirty Dancing okay. Havana Nights. Dirty Dancing One uh, mm. is not. Uh, you actually have not guessed the movie, right? Uh, yeah. But it is a it's Jerry, a Jerry Orbach, Orbach film. gangster comedy. Yes. Um, Do I know based, this movie? You might know it. You'll probably know the title. Okay. Um, it's based on a book by Jimmy Breslin. Uh, yeah. Famous newspaper columnist. Huh. Uh, worked worked with my mother for many years at the Daily Spokesman. News. Shout out Jimmy Pitch Breslin. Person. Yeah. Um, uh, ran for mayor, of course. At one yeah, point, what the fuck? What the fuck is the, the title? The of this movie? movie is called "The Gang That Sh Couldn't Shoot Straight." Oh, <laughs> and it has a, a, 
a young Robert De Niro, of course. And <gasps> yeah. And others. Dad. Yes. Yes. Um, and Papa. basically based based on the life of Joe Gallo, crazy Joe Gallo. You know, I know that title and I think it's a yeah. great movie title and I never, ever had any idea what that movie was about or who was in it. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. That's number three at the box office. Number four, Griffin, is mm-hmm. uh, a, a musical. The biggest hit of 1971. It's in its 16th week. You know, it's going to run for forever. It's not gigantic uh, three hour musical. It's not Fiddler on the Roof. It is Fiddler it on is. the Roof. It is. I thought that was 70 you know for some reason. Okay. Who did 71. the musical arrangements for Fiddler on the Roof, which I didn't realize this? John Williams. That's right. Yes. He did. I think he even won an Oscar or something. He did yeah. for the yeah. one of his. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. I blows for best, like, my adapted mind music. Yes. that anyone ever was able to touch it again after that. <laughs> ba- baby John Williams. We're talking yeah, like thirty. Well, fetus John Williams. Yeah. just <laughs> fresh out the womb, just doing things for Topol, which is just crazy. Um, Fiddler on the Roof, which is one of the last big blown out. Like, you know, that like right. that really is so different from Cabaret. I mean, fantastic it's a lot of fun, film. Obviously. Fantastic. But it's, it's, it's so big. It's yeah. his first Oscar win, but already his fourth nominee. That was my first wow. musical Nomination. I ever did on stage was Fiddler. Oh, really? Yes. You played Tevia? Cool. I was <laughs> I was Tevia's <laughs> understudy. Tevia's yeah. understudy, Griffin. I was uh Sprinza, the second youngest of Tevia's five daughters. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, humble brag. Um, number Indeed. five at the box office is a another uh, Best Picture nominee, a great hmm. film, a, a, a drama, a sensitive coming so of it's age drama. One of the ones we just cited earlier. No, in the, oh, we have from actually the not mentioned year. it. You're saying from a 71. Okay. Because mm-hmm. it's only February, you know, a lot of holdovers. S- yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Won two it's Oscars. A- um, okay. Launched a director's career. Sensitive coming-of-age drama. Launched a director's career. I mean, he'd made movies before this, but this was his big breakout. Uh, It's a great film. It's a great film. It's It's very sad and beautiful and wonderfully acted. Uh, And it stars a bunch of great people. Uh, It's got a scene that my mother described as the most harrowing scene she's ever seen in a movie theater. uh, But she must have been... 16 oh, when this oh movie came out. is this my beloved, mm-hmm. uh, one of my all-time favorite movies? I think so. Last Picture Show? It's The Last Picture Show. Which scene? The, where Sybil Shepard has to strip on the diving okay. board. The pull part. My mom, yeah. I, I think my mom has basically said, like, I was 16 years old. It was, like, my worst nightmare. Were, like, sure. watching, sure. Like, yeah. you know, that sure. idea. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and, and it must have been so shocking in 1971 to see that in a movie. I, I finally um, got yeah. to see that movie in a theater when I was in L.A. recently. I've seen it so many fucking times. I never got to see it on big screen. Jesus Christ, is that thing good. Yeah. I saw it's it good. with a friend of the podcast, Alex Marzonia, uh, very kindly uh, gave me his extra ticket. You've seen that movie, Rachel? I, I, a long time ago. A long mm. time ago. It's and, classic. and the, I think yeah. the thing that stuck out to me the most as well was the same scene that your mother described. The diving board. That's what mm-hmm. I, when you said that, I was like, oh, I have seen that film. So I, that is, I have a list. It's going on the list, everyone. I, I will say, I am still obviously a young man by most metrics, but wow. every time right. I rewatch that movie and I get a little bit older, that uh, fucking Cloris Leachman performance hits mm. harder and cuts deeper. She's so good. Yeah. Um, number, yeah, so that's the top five. Uh, you've also got The Hospital, George C. Scott, Patty Shea, oh, sure. drama. Mm-hmm. 
where he's mm-hmm. a doctor and he's ah, he's going crazy. What are you uh, doing with this I've hospital? Never, I've, I've I've never seen it. Um, <laughs> I know it's a big deal. Uh, you've got mm. a Clockwork Orange, uh, mm-hmm. another 1971 uh, Best Picture nominee. Never talk about will, on this show. Uh, you've got a John Wayne movie called The Cowboys, which sort of seems like he's phoning it in, but okay. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I don't know. You got any movies called The Cowboys? Uh, John Wayne. Yeah, Mark Rydell film. Uh, And you have Diamonds Are Forever. uh, Okay. The final Connery Bond movie officially. uh, If you don't count. You are such. Yeah, you love to discount. You don't count Never Say Never Again. It's not canon. Uh, Mm. And Cabaret. Opening at number 10. Wow. That's it. Yeah, we did it. What a time. What a time to be alive. We made Rachel come on our podcast. I know. Wow. <laughs> Rachel, crazy. thank you so much for doing this. It's Stop. literally like you're one day off of being a, a fucking star of a giant movie in a foreign country hey, on a different time zone. It's deeply appreciated. I, guys, it, any time. This is such a joy. And I love. Okay. I love getting to. I learned so much today. And oh, I, I hope I offered some insight. Maybe Absolutely, I didn't. definitely. I have no idea. <laughs> no, you, I don't remember what I said. You said you said great things. Cool. Are there any final thoughts? Is there any things you want to say about? Uh, uh, I guess uh, the the rest of Fossey's career, since we're only on this one episode, well, his other films. I have to anything. say, I'm extremely envious of the all that jazz episode because that's one of my mm-hmm. favorite movies of all time, and it's also something that I only recently saw full through recently. Mm. Um, I just said the recently twice. I've only seen it full through for the first time recently. And it was because I could only find it on a plane. It well, is yeah, not it's in very circulation hard to now. See. You yeah. cannot rent it or stream it or yeah. digitally you gotta, purchase it you gotta fucking buy anywhere. That Criterion D Blu-ray. Exactly. If you it's that. a and I have no, movie. I have no DVD player here. It's Someone just, get got, Rachel a DVD player. Nothing, Jesus. I have nothing that I can do for that. So I was on a plane back from the Grammys from Vegas. Wow. Layover wow. in Michigan. And then when I flew from Michigan back to London, it was on my flight. And I was like, oh. That is so boys. weird. <laughs> that it, 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 it slipped through all the weird streaming rights to make it to a plane. That, it that was on my funny. Delta flight. Don't back fucking to, get it. To and Great Britain. I'm like, fuck yeah. it, Fox, Disney, take that movie off the goddamn shelf. Yep, put it. Yeah, God, there's so much, one. there's so put many interesting Plus. things that have been put on Disney Plus that I'm like, yes. why not all that jazz? <laughs> Imagine yeah. though. Like, why not? I, like, I use Disney Plus to like watch Bluey and Toy Story with my daughter. <laughs> what if my finger slips? All that jazz. All that jazz. Yeah. <laughs> but I have to say that even, you know, I was talking to um, Mark Webb, who directs Snow White, and mm-hmm he loves all that jazz and it w- i was able to have such an amazing intellectual conversation with him about that because it's just the quintessential fossey movie because it's about fossey by fossey and it's such an interesting movie now that fossey's no longer with us it's such a we can watch it with it's, in, right. with it's a different his perspective text about himself right yeah, yeah. yeah like yeah. that he left by it's his legacy yeah about and, himself it's yeah and the way that he knew he was hurting people and and even though we see little bits of it in all of his movies of this like acknowledgement of the way that he treated mm-hmm. people wasn't right and also the self-deprecation of his 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 entire sense of self all that jazz is just the epitome of that and it's one of the greatest movies ever made and i'll die yeah. on that hill i no, really no, no, will I, no no I no, no. I'm, yeah, I'm with you yeah uh, fantastic performance by ann ranking i don't know how she did it without breaking down every day um mm-hmm. to be playing out her real life in such a way that seems really unfair but she did 
such an incredible job. May may she rest easy. Um, I just yeah. Recently, so I just have to say that yeah. Shockingly recent departure yeah. from the yeah, world. Yeah. I was so heartbroken by that. Also, an incredible Sally Bowles and ranking was mm. have to say. Yeah. Uh, but Hart, but you heard it here. Yeah. Uh, Gauntlet thrown down. Whoever does the all that jazz episode, uh, the, the, don't don't fuck it up. Nah, don't fuck it up, man. Uh, yeah. Uh, do you ever call Mark Webb the Webster? No, I call him Madam Webb. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> even better if he's ever in a bad he's never in a bad mood but I told him that if he's ever in a bad mood I'd call him the dark web uh, sure oh, that's good of course <laughs> what, right. what a yes, tangled yes. web you weave do you yeah. ever say shit like that to him and yeah. I have to say one of the nicest nicest normal guys working in this industry right now a great dad who is making Snow White for his daughter to watch Aww. and it's making me just such, it makes my work so much more fulfilling to work with him. So just shout out to Mark Webb. Shout, <laughs> shout out, out Webb. to Madam Webb. That's very nice. Um, <laughs> can, I ask, can I ask you one question? Please. Uh, do, do they have apples at craft services on that movie or does it feel like a little like... Have you seen my thread on Twitter? Yeah, no. Rachel, I've, Rachel, you've been posting apples on Twitter, I feel like. I yeah, feel like I've my, seen you doing this. Yeah, my Twitter thread of the snacks, uh, the the insensitive snacking that happens okay. on Snow White. <laughs> Because I've made a lot of jokes about how I'm going method for Snow White, and now I'm scared of apples. You should be. <laughs> so, but I've had to. I've had to eat 75 apples on this set, and by oh, eat, shit. it's just a bite. I, bite. You know, sure. it's but it's still like 75. Your jaw is like, what am I doing? And also, you become very self aware of what you look like when you bite into an apple. So I sat there and took a video yeah. on my. I have a video, like a 15 minute long video on my phone of me just being like. This way, maybe, uh, or God. this way. Trying to figure out your apple. What's angles. the most attractive apple biting angle? Yeah. Fun fact: you you won't find one. There there there's just no attractive way to eat an apple. But yes, there's mm. a lot of apple themed snacks. Crafty like does a dessert Word. every day with lunch, and it's almost always an apple crumble or something. And I'm fucking I'm, rude. They're you, not thinking about can you. Can you believe? Yeah, I'm like, it's fun geez. and games for everyone else. Yeah, I'm like, there's nothing that there's nothing that Gal has, to, and there's no food that Gal has to be afraid of. Yeah, they, <laughs> they don't fucking but she, golden she's lasso afraid of mirrors, her in between though. takes. Like, yeah. She's afraid of mirrors. Maybe, yeah. maybe, yeah, she, maybe she yeah. fears the mirror. Oh, yeah. guys, the film's so fucking good, though. I can't wait for everybody to see it. It's so good. Cool. Can't <laughs> wait to see it either. Thank you so much for doing the show. Thanks for having me. This While is so fun. It. Uh, right. People should watch you uh, be a movie star. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that, my plug for you. Now uh, watch Rachel Disney Plus. on Ziggler. Plus. Be a movie Disney star. Plus. Continue to be a movie star. Thank yeah. you. But Disney I got Plus. that 4K Steelbook personally. And HBO oh, I got Max. It too. It's on HBO. Oh Max yeah, it's too. right. It's also on HBO. Got Max. options. Right. Yeah. Um, thanks, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. No, thank you truly, and thank you all, the listener. I'm now like the MC shifting over, looking straight the eyes wow. of the audience, mm-hmm. holding up a mirror. Yep. Thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media and helping to produce the show. JJ Birch for our research. Good job on the Fossier, JJ. Yes. And uh, 10 comedy points for the Fossier joke. Uh, thank you to <laughs> Joe Bone and Pat Reynolds for our artwork. Lay Montgomery, the Great American Owl for our theme song. AJ McKeon and Alex Barron for our editing. You can go to patreon.com slash blank check for blank check special features where we do commentaries on franchises like the Batman movies, but also talk a little Liza with a Z. 
And mm-hmm. you could go blankcheckpod.com for links to all the other nerdy, stupid bullshit that yep. we do. Uh, tune in next week for Lenny. 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 Nothing really Lenny about Anderson. a dark performer who doesn't know how to treat people nicely. <laughs> Yikes. And as always, Vilkaman. Well, no, no. What's <laughs> no. what's the opposite? Auf Wiedersehen. Auf Wiedersehen. I should have said... Uh, I'm just gonna let uh, you do I, it. I, yeah, do it. Oh, that's really all I've got. Adieu. Yep. Adieu. Podcast.